Hi everybody and welcome to Totally Tintin. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And today we're going to be talking about Destination Moon. Yes. Yes, no I relation agree. to Goodnight Moon. No, that's right. Good night, Snowy. Good, Good night, Captain. Good night, Snowy. Good night, bottle of whiskey on the stand. <laughs> Good night, Calculus. Good night, Calculus's horn for hearing. <laughs> Good night, Rocket. Made of ebonite. Yep. Whatever that is. Good night, Bird, the criminal who still hasn't been caught and is still at large, and they haven't wrapped up that plot oh, point the, yet. The tension he gives every story. <laughs> That's right. His possible appearance. Uh, if you're listening for the very first time, let me explain what this show is about. Uh, I am a professional comic book writer. I write the Simpsons of Futurama comics for Bongo uh, Comics Company. Uh, I love comics uh, of all sorts, uh, but I've never read the Tintin series of books, even though they've been highly recommended by friends of mine. Uh, friends of mine like Mr. Uh, me, I guess. I was Mr. Say, Mr. Me, that's right. <laughs> I was say Mr. Dedrick. It feels too formal to introduce myself Please. to myself as, as a... Please, Mr. Dedrick was my father's podcast. <laughs> that's right. Mr. Dedrick was me. I mean, um, well, you should say your first name, though, as well. I did already at the beginning of the show. We'll say it more. I don't feel like I... This is called branding. Okay. People say Tintin's name through the whole book. They're always going Tintin, Tintin. That's why people know right. it's Tintin. Anyway, this is David. Uh, he is a fan of uh, right. Tintin and has been for a very long time. I'm David, boy reporter. Um, and that, and and the reason we bring that up is the premise is I'm reading the books for the very first time. David, and I've is, read them, yeah, I've read them many so times. David is the uh, experienced reader, and he usually comes to the show with context uh, as to uh, where Hergé was in his life at the time, yeah. uh, where Tintin was at the time, what's going on, how the stories break down, and I do this a lot through it. Uh huh. And then after we've done that, uh, we go through the book uh, page at a time. That's not true. And you, you, Dave throws more context in. Yeah. And if you have not read the books before, uh, we do spoil everything yes. pretty much. So if you don't want to be spoiled, then uh, read the book first and then come back to us. But if you don't care, then that's up to you. That's that, your that's your life. That's true. There's only one thing we have never spoiled. That is the location of Mr. Bird. No one <laughs> has anyone checked a tree. <laughs> checked anywhere. Checking the basement of Marlin Spike. Um, so yeah, we're starting with Destination Moon, which obviously is another two-parter. We had mm -hmm. that brief break with the Land of Black Gold as a as a single book. Back back onto the double the duology. Although this is the last one of that. Uh, the last duology book. Mm -hmm. So there's mm -hmm. everyone else is a standalone story. Mm -hmm. That's okay, right. Okay, all right. That's right. It's very. Uh, we've mentioned this a couple of times as a comparison. It's very Empire Strikes Back at the end, where it's not a satisfying ending on its own. It's tune in next time yeah. and like, oh, okay, we'll check it out. In fact, when my wife read this book the first time, she was like, uh, "They don't go to the moon." It was very upset well, that they don't go to the moon. Yeah, I guess if you're not familiar with the stories or how he planned them out, it would be upsetting. And also, and off we go now. The end. And also the fact that it's—I mean, there is a cliffhanger to it. It does end with mm -hmm. a cliffhanger. That oh, it's a complete they're cliffhanger. Not they're not responding. To... In fact, in fact, there's like an announcer voice at the end going like, "Will they survive? Yeah. Won't they?" And, and yeah. such. In in the we've actual... spoiled this already. We've just gone right to the ending <laughs> and told you the, the ending. End of the book. We'll work our way back. Let's work our way back. Let's talk about the fact that this is another one that was in Tintin magazine. Why, why don't you say uh, when it came out? So it uh, started the 30th of March, 1950. Okay. And it. It's, well, it continued until September the 7th, 1950, which isn't very long. Basically, he did mm. 24 pages, and then uh, he disappeared again. Because he was uh, going on walkabout? He was going, he, well, you know, he just having personal problems. So it was actually announced, like, before it even came out, it was announced with, like, two consecutive covers featuring the moon on the cover. And they have nothing to do with any of the images from the actual books. Hmm. They're kind of these very 
odd, uh, almost kind of Georges Méliès, you know, the... the Who is Georges Méliès? He was the French director who did the Journey to the Moon. Understood. You okay. know, with the moon gets the yep. rocket in its eye, the man yep. on the moon. And so they had that kind of look to it with the, with the man on the moon. And one's a, one's a uh, kind of a, uh, wouldn't even call it a half moon, but, you know, a quarter moon. They sort of, whatever you call that, a crescent moon. Crescent moon, yeah. Yeah, and uh, the other one's a full full moon. And it, and one, the, the heads of the characters are kind of popping out uh, out of nowhere around the moon with question marks and... And the other one, they're kind of walking around on the moon, and there's a, a woolly mammoth on the moon, inexplicably. <laughs> because, although, okay, the code name, then think about it, the code name for this moon project is Mammoth. Okay. So that's, I guess that was a clue with a question mark? All right. That already was on the cover. If anyone knows any uh, other reason why the woolly mammoth was there, uh, let us know. And by the way, I should mention this ahead of time. Uh, if you've got any additional information that we might be skipping over mm-hmm. or insights, because we'll be doing a lot of this, like, why is Tintin wearing that hat? Yeah. And then uh, we appreciate it when you let us know. Uh, SneakyDragon.com is our website, and we have message boards there, and uh, it's good to post there. Or if uh, if you'd rather uh, go on Facebook, uh, Sneaky, uh, sorry, on Facebook, we're totally Tintin on Facebook. Yes. Yeah. You almost, <laughs> you almost gave the game away. I did. Um, and so then on April the 7th, 1952, it restarted. And then it ended on October 22nd, 1952. Okay. This book, not the entire not the entire run. Uh, did it lead right into the uh, the next story there was, or was there a break? There afterwards? was no break. Well, there was a break, actually. You're right. Yeah, there was a month-long break All in right. between. But in terms of the story itself, there's not really any sense. It doesn't have like a... A new name or new, you know, or even kind of a, or any sort of introduction mm-hmm. to kind of what, what do we, what happened a month ago? It doesn't have anything, anything like that. In between the, the two year break between the, the first 24 pages and, and the next whatever pages of the book, there is a summary. So, cause there was such a long time, it was almost two years that he was off. So, so then uh, they did have a summary there. So really it's divided into two parts in the magazine, but the two parts are 24 pages and then the entire rest of the story all the way to the end of Explorers on the Moon. Those are the two parts. So it's a little different. Um, now, it was first conceived uh, by Erge. He first thought of sending Tintin to the moon while he was doing uh, Prisoners of, of the Sun. So it was pretty early on. So around 46, 47, he started thinking to himself that his next story was going to be Tintin going to the moon. Uh-huh. And the only thing that stopped him was his own personal problems. Uh, that he was having so much trouble getting through Prisoners of the Sun. You know, he brought in his, a friend who also helped him with this book, uh, Bernard Heuvelmans, came and helped him, actually gave him like an end of the story. He wrote like a treatment for the end of Prisoners of the Sun, which Erge actually used nothing of. But it kind of spurred him yeah. to finish. You know, it was just sort of a helping thing, and he paid him good money to do it. Uh, so um, I think he was kind of inspired by by Jacob's success with his his series that was running in Tintin magazine at the same time as Prisoner of the Sun called The Secret of the Swordfish, um, which was, it was kind of a a sci-fi, but it took place very, in the dis- the near future. It took place okay. in an alternate 1950s that existed after World War III. And so there's two characters, uh, Captain Blake and Professor Mortimer, and they're kind of working with British uh, Secret Service. And and, they're, and it's a there's a uh, kind of Far East empire. It's not said who it is. Uh, it looks very Chinese in the uniforms, uh, like communist Chinese in the uniforms, but it doesn't say what country it is. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is the next threat to Europe. And so the, these guys are going there to to defuse this threat. But it, it takes place with like flying saucer or flying spaceships and stuff like that. So I think that the success of that kind of spurred. So it's Buck Rogers-y. Uh, yeah, yeah, Buck Rogers, um, but with 
without going to another planet right, and, right. and yeah and with and with a very kind of hard science element just reading it. the science here i mean it seems fairly i mean it's not completely out of nowhere like you you're you're reading so the science of it sort of mm-hmm. makes sense like oh, you yeah, like, oh, yeah, this all wanted, yeah. well well re- researched mm-hmm. like it's not all oh, this is bananas it's like yeah. well, it all kind of makes sense but like in the 30s if he's thinking about in this th- in the 30s what was what was this off- is 46 not the 30s oh, okay but when he originally uh, when was it? When did he originally? Forty six. Forty six. Okay, yeah. in forty six. So, what was the thoughts of like going to the moon? Was that just? Well, let's talk about it. We'll get there. We will get yeah, there. Yeah, we'll All get right. there. And, and let's just let's just back up a little bit because yeah, you're right. The first thing that he wanted with the story was to have no fantastical elements in it. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to go to the moon and meet aliens. There's going to be no moon men. There's going to be no monsters. Nothing. No surprises. Nothing fantastic is going to happen. It's mm-hmm. going to be strict, like what would now be called hard sci-fi. That's you know science fiction. That's you know, very much uh, that focuses on technical accuracy and, and and the science of it. You know, rather than so-called soft sci- sci-fi, which is more about, say, social sciences, mm-hmm. the sense of what what would be living in the future be like. And, and, and you as know. you know, that's that's my preference for a story like about Tintin. You know, my beef a couple issues back was when magic was a big part of it, mm-hmm. and it was like boo on that. So it was <laughs> nice to see you know in this that it seemed to at least be trying to be realistic, which is more exciting to me. Uh, but please continue. You've put things in an order. Yeah. I'm talking out of order, but I haven't read Dave's notes That's fine. ahead of time. That's fine. I don't mind it. That's fine. But I just, because I, yeah, I, this is the way I've done it here. It's, it's very, because there's a lot of research that he did into it. So I just want to get to that when it's, the other thing I just want to say, because we talked about it, the fact that this was the, his, an, another duology. And it follows the same pattern set by uh, Secret of the Unicorn, Red Rackham's Treasure, and Seven Crystal Balls, Prisoners of the Sun. So the first half sets up what's, you know, sets up the situation, you know, so we, you know, whether it's a mystery or the, the, you know, the, the, uh, what's, what would he call, okay, you really can't call Prisoners of the Sun a mystery, it's more like a, it's more like a, a peril, like it sets up the, the danger. Right. So Calculus has been kidnapped. Now we have to go rescue yeah. him. But and a, this one, a thriller. Yeah. So the first book sets up the technical details. So it sets up how this trip's going to work. So we know all the kind of details and how much work they've gone into making this happen. And so the next part of it is going to be the adventure to show us what happens. You know, kind of like if you, pl- you know, how carefully you plan something, what can go wrong? You know, or what can go right, or what's going to happen to them when they get there? What kind of what kind of challenges they're going to face, et cetera, et cetera. So we set up set up all that with this first book, and so then because the so the original title of the book or the as it ran in Tintin magazine, it was called uh, On a Marche sur la Lune, which would basically translate as We Walked on the Moon. So it already gave away the title, like it gives away the story. There's no mystery to what's going to happen. It says in the thing that they walked on the moon, so you know that what's going to happen, and that was the title for the entire run of the story in in the magazine it wasn't until it was made into a book in two parts that it was given the two different titles it seems to me it's it's so strange like uh, the amount of time it takes for these stories to come out in magazine form as a child you could grow out of the story like the amount that you age as a child yeah. from the beginning of a, a tintin story to the end mm-hmm. you're the major major changes in a child's yeah. life yeah and that's on that's more on i want i'm not gonna say it's on Hergé, but it's more on the situation surrounding Hergé than it is on right. the stories themselves i mean how other mod- authors were more like you know so let's say jacobs who was doing secret of the swordfish i mean that took a year to do right you know for the complete al- album to be run through the through um the tintin magazine for the complete story to and then for it to be issued after you know it was a year 
compared to like two or more years for Prisoner of the Sun and stuff like that. Although that was two two books. So. Right, but then a lot, you know, if you get something like Secret of the Unicorn into Red Rackham's Treasure into Seven Crystal Ball, I mean, a child has aged mm-hmm. an enormous amount. Yeah. You know, their you know, baby brother just was born and is now in school by the time this one full story reaches com- completion. Yeah. I mean, we, the way that we read them now is, you know, at least you're a kid, you go to the library or buy the books and you read them in a day. Yeah. And now you read the next one in a day. But it must have been so interesting how they read them back then because you sure. would make up then probably the rest of the story with your friends. You go like, what's going to happen? I think this is going to happen. I think blah, 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 blah. Yeah, because it came out every week. That's so right. You had, yeah, you yeah. had a week to, to, to we'll, ponder the next We'll never thing. be able to experience, to no. go through that experience in, in the same way that uh, they did then. No, the same way when we read Watchmen when we were younger we were able to go buy it monthly mm-hmm. and each installment we spent all our time figuring out and looking through all these puzzles that each story or each issue you know had in it and we could pour over it with a great deal of you right know, and that's you can't experience that now if you just buy the graphic novel you read it in one one sitting or one or two sittings yeah. you're done you just sat down you watched all of Twin Peaks in a day yeah it's like, right. did you? okay well then yeah so <laughs> yeah. I think I got it well you don't got it in the same way people got it when they watched it every week and mm-hmm. talked about it and what's yeah. this and what's that yeah yeah so it's it's interesting thinking of the two Tintin experiences uh being so different for sure yeah for sure and uh, I mean I, it's hard to think of an equivalent now I mean I guess if someone was producing kids books now that you know weren't being serialized you know if you're taking two or three years between between each book you are kids are also aging out of the stories as well right and kids aged in a different way back then because you didn't really have teenagers back then you know that's yeah. a fairly modern conceit like in the in the 40s you would go from being a child to well time for a job like almost immediately especially i think in, like in europe so yeah it's like no you're too old for this probably you can still read it if you want but yeah. i don't know if they would you know, I think they had adult adult fans. I think people grew up and, and carried right. on reading Tintin, but but it was a, it's a very different. We don't they didn't have that that middle ground that we do mm-hmm. again nowadays of like well here's your teen years to that are kind of in between being a child and being an adult. It was pretty much, you know, yeah. you're a young adult there. I, I think that's partly why comics have more cachet in Europe than they have in North America is because of Hergé and, and Tintin, mm-hmm. and the fact that it was sophisticated enough that you could read it right. as an adult. The books were sophisticated. They came out as hardcovers. They had, you know, end leafs and they, you know, they were, they were classy. You know, they weren't cheap pamphlets. That yes. We, they were, you know, that fell apart here. Uh, and then they were more sophisticated than the comics that are produced here. They were better drawn. They were better colored. Everything about them was better than what was being produced here, you know, at that time. Like if you took an equivalent comic from that time period mm-hmm. and looked at it, they're pretty crude. Mm-hmm. There's a few that stand out, but most of them are pretty crudely drawn. Yeah. And the writing's okay, you know. What Airship was doing was a lot, I think was a lot different at that time. You know, it took a while, but North America comics caught up. You know, they became more sophisticated, but it took a while for them to do that. Um, so he, uh, so in '47, he either it's hard to know exactly what happened with the, in the situation. He either commissioned uh, Jacques van Malkebeek, his friend, and Bernard Heuvelmans. Both of them were had written for Le Soir Volet. Both of them worked at the Le Soir when it was under German control. So they were both. Uh, you know, people that Hergé loved to give money to because there was no jobs for them. So um, he uh, commissioned them. Let's say he commissioned them. They didn't do it just off the auto whim, but he commissioned them to write a uh, kind of a treatment for a possible Tintin Goes to the Moon story. And so they turned in a, a story. And Hoylemans, uh was kind of, it was sort of an expert on on outer space. Uh, he had written a, a science book about space travel called Man Among the Stars. So he had some experience, he had some knowledge about the physics, etc. That 
And so, and then he wrote a science column for Le Soir called Scientific, Hum called Scientific Humanism, which is a very, hmm. I don't know if I like that title. Sounds like a religion. Well, it does, and it's weird in a Nazi-controlled newspaper mm, to read something yeah. called Scientific Humanism. But he was an interesting guy. He was, a, he was a professor of zoological sciences, and he's called the father of cryptozoology. In fact, he's coined that name, cryptozoology. Okay. He wrote this famous book called On the Tracks of Unknown Animals. And uh, so he was very well known. And he basically would, he, what, his the, what his basic thesis was is that you can't discount folklore, you know, folkloric descriptions of animals uh, just because they haven't been found yet. That they could exist, okay. in a, you know, and we just haven't seen them yet. And some of his predictions have come true. Some of the animals that he thought were, were real have been found. Other ones still not. But so he, um, now Hoeven said that it started in 46. So at 46, 47, they started working on this treatment. And so their version of the story is interesting. It's not good. That's the first thing. It takes place in America mm -hmm. in this place called Radio City. Radio City, USA. It's the town it's based in. Sure. And it features, uh, it returned the shooting star's Decimus Fossil, the professor Fossil. He returns. This time he's more, he's a villain, but sort of a, a silly, let's call him a sillin because he, his, uh, he sells the plans. Did you just coin that phrase? I just coined that phrase, yes. A sillin. A sillin. silly villain. Silly All right. Villain. <laughs> uh, he sells... He sells the plans, the, the rocket plans, in order to, to get money to buy a diamond for Rita Hayworth in the story. So you see why I called him a sillin. So an Erge, he actually did produce like a page, of, like, and it was drawn in the, the seven crystal ball style. So it's uh, the full two-page spread of three-tier. Right. And it's basically a bunch of kind of... Uh, intersperses people listening to the radio, listening to a, a, a radio interview with Calculus being interviewed by, by an interview. And so these people are all laughing at Calculus because he's hard of hearing and he can't understand what the guy's saying. And basically he's saying, you know, I want to go to the moon because it saved my life uh, in The Prisoners of the Sun. So that's why he wants to go to the moon. He it clonks his head like, with the interviewer. They, you know, bump heads over the microphone. It's just stuff like that. And the problem with the story was, is that it was just like a mechanical pastiche of Hergé. It wasn't uh -huh. Hergé. There's the people saying, oh, I know what Hergé is. Hergé is this. Got to walk into a door. You got to bump heads. You got to have a guy who can't <laughs> yeah. hear you. You know, and so, and then... Snowy's got to chase something. Snowy's got to get the better of Snowy. Yeah. And so, uh, Hergé did the one page and he basically just threw it out. I think he kind of looked at it and said, you know what? This is not worth my drawing. And he did keep some elements of it. And we can talk about that. Uh, some, some of the interesting science things that he liked that I thought were amusing, he kept. But everything else, every, anything else about the story, he, he discarded. So... He, Finishing the Land of Black Gold, it uh, it allowed him to kind of rework the story the way he wanted. So while he was working on the Land of Black Gold, which you know was basically a rewrite, so it wasn't a big thinking sort of a job, wasn't a lot of plotting involved in it. Uh, he was able to do this, an incredible amount of research into this possible moon landing, and so uh, with help from Hovelmans, who is not a guy to bear a grudge apparently if you don't use the script, so he's fine with that. Prisoner of the Sun, don't want to use it. I wrote, spent a couple weeks writing it. That's fine. A couple weeks writing this moon thing. You want to use it? That's fine. I'll still help you do research. Apparently, <laughs> he's a good-natured person. So they began like to collect pictures of rockets and and atomic research facil facilities and stuff like that, and then they're collecting documents about rocketry and space travel. Uh, so um, there's books, lots of books. There's one by this guy named Pierre Rousseau called Our Friend the Moon. He was a French astronomer. Uh, Auguste Picard, who was not only was he the inspiration for Professor Calculus, but uh, he also was a, a scientist. And he wrote a book called Between Earth and Sky, which, which uh, Erge used. There's a book called Astronautics by uh, a physicist named Alexander Aronoff, which speculated on space travel. And um, 
Hergé started a correspondence with him. So while he was working the story, he would write. He could write to him and ask him questions about, well, what if this happened, or what? How would we overcome this problem? And then two of the most important books was one called Humanity in the Face of Interplanetary Travel by Albert Ducroix, which dealt with the problems of combustion and atomic energy in, in rock in like space travel. And the other one was called The Conquest of Space, which uh, was written by this guy named Willie Lay. And what's interesting about this book is it had all these great illustrations in it by this fascinating guy named Chesley Bonestell, which not only is his name fascinating, but he's <laughs> fascinating because uh, he's kind of considered the father of modern space art. Like He was a painter, but also an architect. Like he did, he did the Art Deco designs for the Chrysler building. Oh, wow. And also designed like a lot of other interesting uh, buildings. And then he uh, created matte paintings for uh, Citizen Kane and the Magnificent Ambersons. And I think he must have also did miniature work for that as well. I don't know if you've ever seen those films. There's times where there's matte paintings used, but also times where they use miniatures to create this more sense of depth and reality. And so I think he worked on the miniatures as well, because when he started doing his paintings, he would combine painting with miniature work and stuff like that, because he would want to create like depth. He did this series of paintings of Saturn that show like the mist and stuff like that. And the way he did that was to create these three-dimensional kind of tableau. And then he would you know, work, work, that's how he worked, worked it. So when they took pictures of it, it gave this incredible sense of reality of you're actually, we're looking at Saturn from one of its moons. Uh, and so, yeah, he, um, he, he also helped, the Bonestell also worked on this Collier's article that Hergé found really fascinating, which was called Man Will Conquer Space Soon. And it was based on this symposium that actually was moderated or had participation from Willie Lay, but also from Werner von Braun, who's kind of the father of, of modern rocketry. Uh, and Basically, what the symposium said was that uh, spaceflight could be done right then with the existing technologies. So it wasn't a f- in a future kind of a thing. It was possible right now. And this is how. Money. So, you know, what Erge did was take that information and transfer it into, into the story. Uh, he also visited the Center for Atomic Research in Charleroi in France and began a correspondence with, with the director there. And so uh, now other influences, there's a film called Destination Moon. Do you know that film? With, uh, it's produced um, by George Pell, who did like The Time Machine. And I'm not sure. It's an interesting film because it's very hard science fiction. Again, it's okay. very much what it would be like. And it's I almost kind of dry. It sounds familiar. It's almost kind of dry, the film itself. Cause, but it's interesting. But, and once again, uh, because it was being developed in parallel to, uh, to, to um, Hergé working on Destination Moon, uh, by the way, Destination Moon is an English title. It was called Objective Loon. So it wasn't the he didn't rip off the title of the, right. of the movie, but um, because we're being he saw like stills from the film and 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 uh, and once again, uh, Chesley Bonestell did uh, illustration and like um, what do you call it concept work for Destination Moon. So Hergé saw that his his moon paintings and stuff like that, and that clearly inspired him the the uh, landscapes and stuff that that uh, Bob Demur did for the for the books. Um, so. What's strange to me, though, is that um, that Turner and Lonsdale Cooper took the name of a film, the, you know, des- the actual name of a movie, Destination Moon, and used it for the for the book. It's very similar, like Objective Loon and Destination yeah. Moon. Very similar. I mean, Objective would be more like Target, Target Moon. But you know, it's hard to yeah. it's hard to make exact. But it just seems odd. It's almost as if they didn't know it existed. You know, it's kind of like oh, it's this science fiction film for kids. They didn't pay attention to it with their reading their Greek. And find, you know, polishing their Latin phrases so they couldn't, uh, couldn't be bothered. Uh, and now, I think that some of the bones of the story that John van, John, uh, Jacques van Melkebeek brought to it were heavily influenced by J- Jules Verne's story. Um, 
which was called Around the Moon. Right. And so, because he was a huge Jules, Jules uh, Verne fan, and we've already talked about him before bringing elements of Jules Verne to, to Hergé's stories. So I think it's not unlikely that some of the elements that are similar to Verne that appear in Destination Moon and in Explorers on the Moon came through Malkovich to, to the story. Yeah, that all story. makes sense, yeah. Um, so we won't talk about that right now. What I think is interesting, though, is that despite all the research, Hergé, it's kind of overwhelming in this book. But he never lets it completely overwhelm the story. You know, like he's kind of proud of how much work he did figuring all this stuff out. Like, yeah. you know, he really solves the problems of, of interplanetary flight. You know, everything he's talking about could work theoretically. Uh, but he never like, it's never so boring that you just want to close the book and walk away from it. You know, he keeps it light, mostly through Haddock. Uh, but, you know, he keeps it light, so it keeps it interesting. It's not a, it's not a complete bore. But um, uh, what's, what's interesting is, uh, so... I said the book itself was called in the magazine on a marché uh, sur la lune, but for the album itself, several different titles were considered, and I, I, they're kind of fun. All right. Uh, one is called one's very French. You cannot possibly, I can't. It's hard to to uh, translate it, but it's Le Grand Depart, so the Great Departure. Sure. Or the Great Journey. Yeah, the Grand Departure. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Le Mammoth Travail. The Mammoth works. The Mammoth is working. Mammoth is working. That was the code name of the project. So. Okay. Uh, the other one was, uh, Operation Mammoth. Yeah, that's fine. It's okay. Not great. How about Moon Rocket? No response. Nope. Don't like it. Problem with that is there's a, there's a Joe Zed and Jocko story called the Manitoba isn't responding or no response. Okay. So, so yeah. Uh, it's weird with Mammoth because, uh, you don't picture Mammoth as flying beautifully. Yeah. Uh, the Mammoth yeah. is extinct. <laughs> mammoth did not survive. It's not, it's not the greatest yeah. idea. I think it's more a sense of bigness, like hugeness mammoth i mean oh i understand okay yeah. all right uh how about <laughs> this one's really weird for because in french it's broad zone interdite so forbidden zones broad or restricted zones broad it's broad is where they are yeah in Soldavia. uh how about uh, professor Cal- movies have called themselves forbidden zone after that so you know that's how about uh, professor calculus plays the goat no that was a possible title i would like to see the cover for that <laughs> uh destination moon very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing will stop Tintin. Hmm. And then uh, that's one that you're sitting around going like, "Look, it's three in the morning. There's no bad ideas. What do you got? <laughs> nothing will stop Tintin. Fine, that's write it every down. Every book. Write it down. Fred, what else we got? Fred, that's every book. Oh, uh, that's snowy. The last one. Oh, that's snowy. Haddock's poor aching head. <laughs> Grumpy dog on spaceship. No, the last one was Tintin and the atomic rocket. It's okay. It's fine. Yeah. The I would have bought it. If I saw flute. Tintin in the atomic rocket, I would uh, I would absolutely pick that up. That sounds exciting. I would uh, go for that. And uh, Even if it was just called Atomic Rocket, that's pretty good. I'd pick up that book. Atomic Rocket. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I think, they, I think the best title was chosen. Mm-hmm. I don't think you can second guess them on that one. So, did you, so this is one of two Tintin books that I personally know of that have been in a film. The first one is Red Rackham's Treasure, which is read by Dustin Hoffman to his son in Kramer vs. Kramer. Okay. It's a very it's a very strange shot because they're, you're looking down a hallway into his bedroom and they're laying on the bed and he's he's reading the book to him. Mm-hmm. And then the phone rings. The next one is Destination Moon is in Seth MacFarlane's movie Ted. In uh, what scene? Uh, who, 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 uh, what's the guy's name? Wahlberg. Uh, Mark Wahlberg. Well, yeah, he's reading the book. He's laying on the bed reading the book. He wouldn't understand this book. <laughs> There's no way he'd the read the character this. in the movie or the actor. Uh, Both. Uh, no, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna go the character in the movie. The character in the movie is a big dummy. He wouldn't read this book. There you this go. is one no no sir well, I <laughs> disagree with, with that completely that's a that's the wrong choice for that one nope nope don't buy it at all nope so 
Let's he's talk. really dumb in the movie. I believe he's you. not a smart guy. He's going to go through this. He's going to see that blueprint for a rocket. He's not going to go for that. Like, here's the only thing that you can sort of go with that. Because in the movie, he likes um, uh, Flash Gordon, the movie. Okay. Right? Well, like, I can see, like, oh, he likes space things. I think this is someone went like, oh, you like comics, eh? You like uh, Flash Gordon. Well, there's a Tintin book where he uh, go into the moon. Uh, he would pick this book up and go, meh, and say a, a semi-racist, sexist joke. Uh, the, uh, the Ted would top it yes. with an even more sexist joke, uh, yeah. some sort of sexual uh, double entendre, yeah. and uh, he put it down. And that's Make the end of it. Make some horrible joke about Snowy, and that'd be the end of it. <laughs> that would be... Yeah. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about the two... Terrible. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the two-year break. Okay. It's a t- usual thing, of course, is that... And I... I don't want to sound like I'm making fun of Hergé or that I'm criticizing him because no one chooses to be depressed. No one chooses to have depression as an illness or go through PTSD, right. which I think this is what he was going through. Back um, when you didn't call it that. No, it, was, it wasn't even diagnosed. I mean, no, you had shell I, shock. your best, yeah, shell shock, but yeah. you know, that's if you're in the service. Like, mm-hmm. you, weren't, you didn't go to war. You no. were uh, still drawing. You don't get shell shock from yeah. being at the drawing table, buddy. That's right. Yeah. Uh, no sympathy. So uh, we kind of talked about it with... Um, you know, he was kind of still, even though he was absent a lot, he was still wrapped up in in this in the magazine. Like, mm-hmm. and even though it was selling a lot, he felt like it was lagging and it was falling behind in some way. And what he said, what he felt was that he felt that the stories, the the most of the stories were based in the past. They weren't taking place mm. in the present. They're always That's stories about knights and and centurions and or sailors, uncovering and, old things, yeah, you know, things from the past. Yeah, you're and, right. And so, and he felt like that was cutting them off from a prospective audience of, of younger people. That it wasn't, there wasn't stories that were interesting to them because it wasn't their experiences that were being talked about. Fair, fair point. And so, it was, so the success of Jacob's Seeker the Swordfish kind of, to him, was evidence of that. That here was a science fiction story that created this alternate reality. And it was very interesting to people. And it was very mm-hmm. successful, not just with kids, but with soldiers, with all kinds of people. Loved, loved that book. Like, loved that story. And so he felt like, and so... For him, uh, Destination Moon was kind of a part of that. Was this book that's very contemporary? Not as it is very contemporary, but it's looking slightly ahead of the of, of our time. That it's anticipating events to come. And he was anticipating events. You know, fifteen years later, the people actually did walk on the moon. So he was anticipating it, but not just anticipating it, but predicting it in a way that was accurate as well. Not in every way, but in yeah. ways that you know overall. Um, so yeah, like I said, he started the book. Were great guns, 24 pages, then just left again. The first thing he did, uh, well, let's just say problems with his wife. That was what the one problem, obviously, yeah. one of his problems. The problem because being that he was having affairs? That was part of it, but I mean, that was a symptom, not not the cause. Okay. You know, it was, it, she just did not understand him anymore, if she ever did. Yeah. You know, or what What? Married she, young, were kind of uh, put, yeah. to, put to, together by a priest. She was almost his mother. In his mm. life, you know, or a mother hen for him. Yeah, uh, and she could not. Un- she could understand like why Tintin was important to him and why it it hurt him and tormented him. She couldn't get that. You know, to her, it was just a kid's story. She didn't understand how much how much his ego and his personality was wrapped up in this character. And so, you know, her assumed role as this kind of mother or mother hen for him, uh, it was not what he needed at that time. He didn't need someone to, you know, be looking after him. He needed someone who would understand him, who would sympathize with how he felt and go through it with him and that's she couldn't do that because she didn't understand it hmm. you know to she would write these letters to him just basically saying like you know be a man what would tintin do in this situation well you know stuff like that that's not very helpful when you're feeling like you want to just crawl into the ground and pull the earth over you right right uh and then worst of all 
she turned to like mystical crackpots for assistance. So then she's coming at him with this kind of, you know, quasi-religious mumbo-jumbo that to him, as kind of himself, kind of a quasi-rationalist, uh, you know, I don't want to say he's a complete rationalist because, you, you know, the end of the seven, or the prisoner of the sun, shows that he had some interest in mystical elements and magic and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he thought, saw himself as very scientific and, and, and a rational person. And all this stuff to him was just so much garbage, you know, and to have someone coming to you, trying to appeal to you as a person and bringing them, bringing that to you that you, you can't, you just lose respect for them, you know. And so for him, you know, he still loved her as his wife. He still loved her as a person, but he just felt the marriage was over. Oh, yeah. You got to feel bad for both of them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, she, it sounds like she was at least trying something, you know, it's not, it's not the complete shutdown and, uh, and just cool off if, you know, she's making bad choices, but at least she's making some choices. Yeah. Try, she's trying. She's trying. Yeah. yeah. She's it's taking just, some long shots. But she's tone deaf, so she doesn't know what, she doesn't know that what, everything she's trying is hurting him more. You know? And also, yeah, she, she's tone deaf, but then he probably also doesn't know too, because, you know, as, as we said, if you don't know, uh, PTSD exists, yeah. you, then you're just weak. Yeah. And, and he's probably, he was a very red person he's probably not really telling everyone what he's going through you know no back then why would you that would be uh that would not be the behavior of the time yeah so now also when he was working for liberty vantiam and was working for le soir you know he had a certain amount of independence in those situations you know he was you know he did tintin he did tintin as he felt like it the stories were a reflection of him of his interests and stuff like that a tintin magazine suddenly his character suddenly bearing all this weight not just him, but his character as well. It's the magazine's named after the character. Right. You know, it's this commercial enterprise that he has now become part of, that he's married himself to, that he can't escape from. And, you know, LeBlanc, Raymond LeBlanc, the publisher, wanted to pursue more commercial elements with Tintin, which Ergé wasn't really comfortable with the idea of there being Tintin cereal and Tintin dog food and all, you know, snowy dog food and all this kind of stuff like that, right? Hmm. And even he just refused to even draw images for that stuff. Like, he just didn't want to have anything to do with it. So that was going on. And so... Basically, what he did is he just, he just, uh, he just left. Was there any reason why he didn't want there to be all the merchandise? I didn't mind merchandise. He didn't mind like there being stuff that kids could have, like toys and stuff like that. He didn't mind that, but he didn't. He felt uncomfortable with the idea of of Tintin being a spokesperson for oh, okay. for products. For... So he wasn't a full Bill Watterson on this kind of thing. No, no, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't mind like if kids could have a shirt or a towel or blankets or whatever. That's fine. But the idea of Tintin selling cars yeah. or Tintin selling dog food or whatever, just to him, that's not what Tintin was. Tintin, we've already read the stories, Tintin refuses money. People are offering him money all the time and he throws it in their faces and throws them in their own faces. Right. You know, so, you know, he's the idea of this character who's so honorable. So you're so saying honorable. Captain Haddock could do it because he would accept the money. Yeah, Captain Haddock <laughs> could do it. But, but he wouldn't have to because he's rich now. So there you enough. go. But but Tintin, yeah, this is not in his character. As, yeah. As and to Erge, he lived so much in that character that it was it was weird to him this idea. It was just he couldn't comprehend it. The idea that he's going to sell biscuits, like no. Was he always like that even before the war? Well, it wasn't really. It wasn't really ever an opportunity or, or no one ever mentioned this it is again time. this is just a long shot theory there but it's like you know he, tintin used to be, was in a propaganda magazine for quite a while you know and used to kind of push a point of view that he did not believe in so it's like Maybe. basically propaganda is advertising mm-hmm. you know so i could see how you wouldn't want your character like you want your character to stay pure after that and just like He's not going to be part of anything. He's in mm-hmm. his own world, and he's not endorsing. He's not pushing. He's not saying, "Hey, join up with this or do that." I could, I could sort of see, you know, those those connections there. So you don't go the full Charles Schultz and now Snoopy is selling MetLife 
and yeah. Dolly Madison cakes <laughs> yeah. and yeah. You know, everything else under the sun. I mean, because Ersie wasn't opposed to advertising. He worked. No. He he wanted to work in advertising. And there's nothing. Ter- there's nothing. Okay. And I'm also going to say, I mean, I I don't think it, it takes too much away from the character, too, because, you know, I'm an enormous fan of the Peanuts comic strip. Yeah. And to me, the Peanuts comic strip is its own thing, even though, yeah, Snoopy, you can see, selling insurance. Yeah. Uh, on TV, but that to me is a different Snoopy than the Snoopy sure. who's in the comic strip, and that guy in the comic strip is never going to turn to you and just go, "Hey, you want a Pepsi?" So it's fine. Yeah. It's different. It's yeah. you know, it's all right. Ergie had Ergie had more difficulty with it. Yeah, that's right. But again, he wasn't the full as we, I just said. Watterson, Calvin, and Hobbes. Yeah, no, I'm not even doing a T-shirt. We're not doing an action figure. We're yeah. not doing slippers. We're not doing anything. He would do car stickers though. Um, he did not do car stickers <laughs> at all. <laughs> so uh, the other thing that was attempt that was a, an attempt to try to normalize his life. Yeah. In 1950, in April 1950, they started officially started Studio Hergé. So this was it was incorporated as a business. Right. And the idea was that he was going to create this kind of a, a artist paradise for himself that he had his own helpers, assistants. And create this kind of situation that would be a kind of a cocoon for himself that, you know, would kind of shield him from the all the crassness of, of the Tintin magazine and, and just everything in life in general. And because, you know, he, he needed it for three reasons. One, the volume of work that he was producing, Tintin, Quick and Flutka, and then Josette and Jocko. Those were all, three different ships that were all being worked on by Hergé at different times. And then, uh, you know, he was doing the, the uh, Voir and Savoir series, the Look and Learn series, so it, which was expected to him to have him draw boats and cars and planes and things like that. And Tintin had to be in each one, sitting in the boat or standing beside the, the car or whatever, you know. Um, and then, all, you know, just various images and things like that, covers, uh, things for not advertising images for products, but, you know, magazine adver- advertising and stuff like that also needed to be created. So these are all things that... And he insisted on drawing Tintin, or any of the characters, he had to draw them. He, you know, he he had, you know, um, E.P. Jacobs, when he was working with him, would draw, like, the cars and the planes and things like that. He had no problem with someone else doing that. And But as long as he was doing the figures, that was what was important to him. Then, how about, you know, also purely financial reasons. Now you're more successful, you're buying art supplies, you're buying all this material. Now you're incorporated, you can, that can all be written off. Of course, that's a good thing. And then finally, and probably most importantly, was it gave him this organized daily regiment you know, they kind of overcome his depression. So given this, you know, this situation where, you know, we went in every day where people that, you know, he could like and liked him and they would work and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so because, you know, after the departure of Jacobs, um, he had and then Ellis DeVos, who worked with him till 43 as a colorist. Uh, after Jacobs left, he hired this guy, Guy de Sissi, and then uh, Franz Jägenau to help with sort of the drawings and the coloring and stuff like that. All right. And so they were there. And so, it, you know, I don't know how much longer they stayed after it became a, I don't think they stayed much longer after it became uh, Studio Hergé. But, and I think also it, it was symbolic for him too, that it, and it acted as a declaration of independence from Tintin Magazine and from LeBlanc. So in a way, it's kind of like, you are there and I'm here. And there are two different things. So, uh, and I don't think he, f- I don't think he started to be like a Walt Disney. That wasn't his his vision. His vision was to create this place where he could be more creative. He didn't want to become a businessman. He didn't want to be in an office directing people to to work on Mickey Mouse and to you know. He wanted to still be his hands yeah. in the in in the the work. But he just wanted people to you know. For instance, it took him a long time to draw like a telephone. Like he had a hard time drawing phones or bowler hats. Yeah. Like uh, the uh, uh, Thompsons. the Thompsons wore. He had a hard time drawing bowler hats. So he would waste. 
you know, all this time drawing these things that were very, you know, beside the point in the story. Why not have people who are good at doing that do that for him so he didn't have to worry yeah, about that sort of stuff? Time. Yeah. So save your time so you're doing other things, you know? Yeah. He was basically... He can spend forever drawing a horse or find someone who can draw a horse. He was pretty good at horses. Fair he was pretty good, pretty darn good at horses. But yeah, you're right. Um, so when it first started, besides Germain, his wife, there was basically three other people. There was an illustrator, a colorist, and then his, his uh, secretary, who for a long time was Marcel, Marcel de Hay, uh, one of the people who could kind of talk to him and tell him what's what. Another person who worked for Le Soir and Le Petit Vantiam, another Incivique that he hired who couldn't get it to work anywhere else. And uh, he, he was promoted to become editor-in-chief of Tintin magazine. So then he hired this other guy, another Incivique. This guy spent some time in jail and had to pay a huge fine. This guy, his name was, had a great name, Baudouin. Ready for this name? Yeah. Baudouin Vanden Brendan de Wraith. How do you get that on the mugshot? <laughs> it's not a room. You don't want to have that name in prison. BVD. That's, that's way too fancy a name to be in prison. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want to have that. You probably had a. You probably pretend he had a different name, Spike. <laughs> um, what was he arrested for? Sorry. Uh, he was a collaborator during the. He worked for Understood. a newspaper. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so even so, now saying all this, even with the new studios that he just started, he still disappeared for two years. Basically, the first thing he did, he and Marcel Duhay went together. They went and camped at this monastery where Father Gall, who we talked about before, was. This is a guy who uh, was such a huge fan of the Native Americans that he was actually. Uh, a sort of a, a honorary Native American that the the, the uh, Indians in North America, you know, said you are a Lakota, you know, and he had a, wow had a name. He was like the lonely lonely Dakota or something like that. And so they stayed there for several weeks, basically reliving their scouting days, living in a tent, right, camping out. They did that for quite a while. Then he went to Switzerland and actually visited the king, and they became really good friends. And and I think he wanted to visit the king because they both had similar experiences. Not not as the king had the you know, the more extreme experience. But, you know, the king had elected to stay. He had, you know, decided on this idea of neutrality mm -hmm. and had elected to stay as the figurehead of Belgium during the Nazi occupation. And like the government, which left and went to England, he stayed and underwent all the, privation, all the privations that his own people went through. And we talked about it, that it was through his own intercession with the Germans that he was able to save about half a million people from forced labor. You know, so it's not like he was just a useless nothing there. He he really did help. But after the war, people who didn't want a king, didn't want royalty, took advantage of this to, you know, create all this bad news and bad. And basically, he was forced to leave the country and live in exile in Switzerland. And it wasn't until 1950 that there was a, a there was an election, like a, not an election, but a, a, what do you call it? Like a plebiscite? Yeah. Referendum to decide if he could come back again. And? And it was, it was in his favor, but it was so divisive that he felt it was, it would just be too, too hard for him, for the country, for him to come back. So he, he abdicated in favor of his son. So he lived in exile in Switzerland. And I think Hergé felt like he kind of experienced the same thing. He stayed, you know, he stayed, did his duty as a, as a, you know, in a sort of neutral situation where, you know, I'm just an artist, I'm just a cartoonist, I'm, you know, I'm just doing this thing that, because people need it. People need yep. Tintin. And, uh, and then, you know, he couldn't understand the fallout of it. Some agree, some didn't. Yeah. That's right. And he couldn't understand the fallout, fallout of it. Um, and the person, and how personal it was, the personal attacks as well. Like to him, that's, he just didn't understand that people didn't like him, you know, or were jealous of him. And that jealousy came out in this, you know, attack after the war. Um, so, he uh, finally, after getting letters from both LeBlanc and Germain, which I said were stuff like, you know, what would Tintin do? Won't you return for the sake of Tintin, et cetera, et cetera, all those sort of things that, you know, probably just, you know, Wormwood, you know, just like didn't want to hear it at all. But finally, uh, he returned. And 
what he needed to do was to find someone who was like Jacobs. He needed someone who was his artistic equal, but someone who, unlike Jacobs, would be happy working in the background, didn't need to have their name beside his name. Gotcha. You know, and that's what part of why he started the studios as well. Now you're not working with me as a, as a collaborator. We're not equals. I'm your boss. You yeah. work for me. Whatever you create is in my name. You know, you can't say, even though you drew, which Bob Demore, who we'll talk about in a second, but Bob Demore drew everything at a certain point in, in uh, Destination Moon and all of Explorers on the Moon. All the backgrounds are Bob Demore. When you look at those and you go, wow, he or she could sure draw the moon, you know, well, no, he didn't. It was Bob Demore who did all those drawings. You know, admittedly, he did all those drawings in an Hergé style. So if you right. look back at what Hergé, how Hergé drew rocks, rock formations in Prisoners of the Sun or in Land of Black Gold or in any of those stories, how he did water, you know, yeah. and stuff, that's him. You know, that's his, his touch. Uh, the later stuff is, you know, Bob Demore or Jacques Martin, whoever was working for the, at the studio at that time, they're doing their best Hergé, you know. And in fact, let's just talk about Bob Demore because um, he um, was he worked for a long time in in the like Flemish comics. He actually worked for Kufia, the the Flemish version of Tintin. Okay. Uh, and he was quite successful. He had his own he had his own studio. He and his brother had a studio. He drew, and his brother was kind of the business part of it. And he was just this really prolific guy. He was he could draw in a week. He could do eight finished pages a week, uh, like finished comic book pages a week, and that's colored, not just inked or not just pencil. That's Inked, penciled, inked, and colored eight a, eight a week. He just could draw like like no nobody's business, and uh, so he met. Um, it's kind of funny. He first he met Hergé in nineteen forty eight. He kind of showed some of his drawings to him, and Hergé, you know, gave him some pointers and stuff like that. Then later he met Hergé again. He was introduced by this guy named Eugene Evany, who was once again worked for Hergé, another guy who was a collaborator who couldn't get work. Uh, and so Bob Dumour was very nervous. Said to Hergé, "I know your work. It's really not bad at all." <laughs> which is a kind of it's a Canadian compliment. And then, uh, and so finally, now, it's hard to know who, who recommended it. Some say the editor of Kufia re- recommended Bob Demore to Tintin. Other people say that it was Evany himself who wrote a letter. And some say it was Raymond LeBlanc. No one knows. Everyone takes credit for introducing Bob Demore to Hergé. That's how important he was to Hergé is everyone wants a share of that introduction. Right. Because basically, Bob Demore worked from 1951 all the way to 1986, Three years after Hergé's death, he worked for Studio Hergé, and uh, he, you know, was there for everything. He never left. He never fought with with uh, Hergé. Hergé wrote him a letter asking him if he would work for him, and that was the one letter he ever wrote to Bob Demore. And yet they were super great friends their whole lives, like just very close. And I think because Demore was a very was a very convivial person, wasn't competitive, didn't feel the need to put himself forward as you know equal to Tin, to Hergé as the co-creator of Tintin, blah, blah, blah. And Hergé appreciated that because that's not, he didn't want that. He wanted people who worked for him to bring his vision about. And to him, no matter what you did, he didn't care if you drew the whole book. You know, the the conception was his. So Tintin was his and he would never share that. And yeah, it's interesting. The, and what's interesting is the more he became famous as Hergé, the less generous he got with the credit of being up to other people, of other artists around him. But, you know, it's just the... So yeah, like I said, the draw- so when they started, so basically what happened was Hergé by himself drew the first 24 pages of Destination Moon. Then uh, when he started it up again, Bob Demur was with him. And in fact, Bob Demur was kind of working on it bef- while Hergé was still away. One of his first things he drew was that big full-size picture of the spaceship sitting in the gantries. Uh, that's all, that's all Demur. That's just him. Yeah, it's gorgeous. That's a great drawing. Yeah, yeah. it's a fantastic drawing. 
and the cover is his too. Like that's um, RJ probably did the figures, but everything else on the cover would be be it's, more. It's also a great cover. It's a great, great cover. Now it's hard to know if it's you know it may have been laid out by RJ. You know that he he would draw out like a rough of what he wanted, and then the artist would be expected to follow those roughs. But it's hard to know because basically their assignments were very easily divided. RJ was responsible for drawing the figures and faces, uh, composing the layouts, writing the story. And then the very easy job of inventing a functioning spaceship. <laughs> and then Demur was responsible for all the backgrounds. So everything that you see in the background, all the gantries, control panels, space suits, everything is all by Bob Demur. Who designed the rocket? Do we know? Uh, it's based, it was, it's... Um, it's not, a beautiful design. Yeah, it was designed by Hergé. Um, it was drawn by Bob Demur. It actually follows... If you want to talk about it, I kind of left it out because I wanted. To, I thought we could do more in the book. I just feel like we're never going to get to the book because there's so much detail sure. that was happening at this time. So let's talk about it when we get to the book. All more. right. Uh, I mean, I could, but then I'd feel like, ugh, I'm such a bore. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that was how it was divided. So, yes, we can stop there. We can start the book now. Okay. So what we uh, do is we go page uh, by page. We kind of take you through the story, and then uh, Dave peppers things with uh, things. And then he calls himself a bore every so often, <laughs> which, you know. I don't think it's fair. Do you? Anyway. I know it's sort of the, I know it's kind of the idea of the show, but after a while, after 50, min- 50 minutes of talking, you feel like... <laughs> after 55 said, episodes. 55 have episodes? you been doing other what? shows like, like while we've been doing this? Yeah. All okay. right. Fair enough. And then every so often, Dave takes uh, two months off. He just goes for a wander about. Yeah. We don't know where he is. Exactly. Uh, his wife's very worried, but... Uh, I hope everyone listens to my show, Tintinally Total. <laughs> That's right. Goes camping. So yeah, let's just say it's a beautiful cover. Yeah, a fantastically beautiful cover. I and like how, I like everyone uh, having a very different reaction to things. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though that you uh, you see like it's it's the back of Tintin's head, you can tell there's a little sweat bead yep. coming off him. That like whoa, he's very that's, impressed. So is the captain. Uh, Snowy is uh, nervous and uh, Calculus yeah. is upset. Well, we know this scene. We know yeah. the scene taken from the book, so we know this is the I'm first. I'm a goat, reveal. am I? I'm yeah, being yeah. the goat. Uh, and uh, the other interesting thing to point out is this uh, Jeep they're driving, a 1945 Willis Jeep, just like the uh, Thompsons were driving in Land of Black Gold, only blue instead of red, mm-hmm. uh, is has no steering wheel. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that is the more advanced part of uh, this. Is uh, the You know, I, um, I, I looked up that expression, uh, the, being the goat, Yeah. Uh, and the first thing that came up was the animated version of that scene okay. from Nelvana, and yeah, so yeah. I watched that. Uh, I don't care for uh, that animated version. Well, but, uh, okay, you well, know, we can talk about that later, I guess. Yeah, or I could say right yeah, now. Yeah, say it right now. It's yeah. just not sharp enough. It's that uh, Canadian animation thing, and I work okay. in Canadian animation, where it's uh, it's just too slow. Oh, okay. What are you saying? And I, I just picture everyone's voice in Tintin, for the most part, except for maybe the butler, being clipped. Yes. Very sharp. Yeah. Getting to the point. Yeah. And uh, everything's just too slow through the whole thing. Oh, snowy. I agree with you. You know, they're wordy. They're wordy scripts, but they're wordy in the way like a, a screwball comedy would yeah, have been peppy. wordy. Yeah. They're going to get on with it. Yeah. All right. Well, what are you saying to me? Yeah. Like, if you don't like this book, then you wouldn't enjoy a Preston Sturges comedy. Oh, okay. Because a Preston Sturges comedy is a mix of, of talk, a mix of, you know, patter. And also, you know, slapstick well, physical comedy. You know what? That if we had been thinking at the beginning of uh, when we started to do this podcast, what we could have done to add as an element yeah. would be to say at the end of each story, if you like this, here's something else you might enjoy, <laughs> like a Preston Sturgis comedy, and you could recommend one. Yeah. Or we could have recommended something like, you know, the film Destination Moon or something. Why not check that out? And we, if we were clever, we would have done that. But we didn't. You, you so just did uh, it. you just did it. 
here we are. We're clever. Okay, so clever we're going to start off with page one, and we're going into Marlin Spike. Uh, we are seeing Marlin Spike now from the only angle you will ever see Marlin Spike in, which is dead on. As you have mentioned before, uh, you never see it from the side. You never see it from the back. There's one picture. Unless the back looks exactly like the front. Maybe it's a mirrored situation. He uh, he just had one picture of it, I guess, in his in his archives. Sure. He had a pamphlet uh, advertising the Chateau Ch- Chevigny, and he just never... He never got another one, so. So uh, it's a uh, it's a uh, captain and Tintin uh, pulling up and looks like a, t- a taxi cab or being driven by someone. Uh, and uh, uh, Nestor the uh, butler comes to greet him down the stairs, uh, saying, "Did he have a good trip?" Now it's nice to see that uh, the um, the Marlin Spike has been repaired since the last time we saw it, because yes. Calculus was doing some experiments and blowing holes in in the sides of it. Yeah. Uh, but it's it seems like uh, we're really building on the idea that uh, Haddock likes calculus. Yeah. They're friends. Yeah. They're pals. Well, they're, you know, Haddock is a, a rough kind of a character. He's a seaman. He's not, you know, he's he's a he's a kind of a crabby, grumpy guy, but right. you know, with a heart of gold. So of course, his friends are his friends. Right. You know. But uh, yeah, he's uh, looking forward to seeing. I think this this uh, makes a point that later on, when someone, let's say calculus, gets upset, it's because. Well, how dare you? You know, we're friends. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, so he's asking where Calculus is. Nestor's telling him, well, no, he, uh, uh, he he hasn't written to you. He left uh, three weeks ago. What? He's gone? At this point, while I'm reading this story, it feels to me if this was a television series, the actor who plays Calculus is asking for too much money because he hasn't been in the last little while. There's been, uh, he didn't show up last time, and now he's not around this time. Yeah. And, oh, you just missed him. And what, is he shooting a movie? What? Why, why was Calculus <laughs> not around? Anyway. Uh, so, uh, so Nestor's telling him, yep, three weeks ago, a gentleman with a foreign accent came to talk to him. I had a long talk. Professor packed his luggage. Off they went. Very, uh, you know, he said he was going to write to you. Very surprised he hadn't. At that point, the phone rings. One of those difficult to draw phones. Yes, in fact, it's not drawn. That's how difficult it is. Or not, yeah, it's not showing. It's just heard. No, it isn't. It's there. The phone's there. Where? Right there. There's the phone ringing. Have we got very different... No, no, I was on the second page. Sorry. All right, very good. I guess it rings twice. Or maybe that's the doorbell. That Okay, that's the doorbell. I'm sorry. Very good. Okay. I had jumped ahead. I, jumped, I thought you were on the second You're so page. so eager. I am. All right. I jumped ahead. So uh, the captain answers the phone, uh, saying, uh, yeah, hello? No, no, that's Captain Haddock. No, he's not here. What? Who's that? And trying to uh, find out who this is. Nope. Letting them know that uh, Cacklos isn't around, but uh, it just hangs up. It's very, very odd. Uh, yes. goes up the stairs, and uh, Snowy's on the scent of something, something suspicious behind the door, and it is that Siamese cat again. Yes. <laughs> I say you like that cat. Right, and uh, Snowy chases after the cat. The cat gives him the slip, and uh, Snowy gets his first injury of the story. <laughs> <laughs> Just yes. then, the uh, doorbell rings. This is where you were at. Yes. And, uh, and we get a, a telegram. Why don't you take it? A uh, telegram, yes. Served on a silver platter by Nestor. Uh, and the, the, uh, this is a classic. Like when you grow up as a kid, you're fascinated by telegrams because you don't understand why they say stop. But it says, I'm in Sildavia. Stop. Come and join me. Stop. Bring Tintin. Stop. Please wire date of arrival. This address. Stop. And then it gives an address that uh, I can't read because it's in uh, Sildavian. And then it says, regards, calculus. With uh, two plus signs afterwards. That was a, yes, that was a telegram thing. Okay. Yes. Uh, and then... So, Haddock, of course, doesn't say what I would have said. Who would send a telegram this day and age when you could phone? But anyway, because in those days, of course, it was very difficult to phone, to but do a long telegram, distance. But a telegram is serious. If someone dies, you get the telegram. The telegram's yeah. at the door. You don't think, this is great. You think, something's happened. 
Take oh, it seriously. Read ever, it. There's a great uh, suspense radio show that details how difficult it was to phone across the United States on, on the telephone. Mm-hmm. Like the whole premise of that episode is the time this person needs to contact the West Coast and how difficult it was to go from exchange to exchange oh, wow. all the way across the country. It's amazing. So it was much faster to send a telegram than to phone someone in terms of uh, efficiency. As someone who used to work as a singing telegram guy, I appreciate that people still use telegrams. (laughs) That was not a good job. I'd say that much. Oh, it's not a plug at all. That business is long since gone. I know you're still doing it. That's right. I may have to leave halfway through this, get in that gorilla outfit (laughs) and uh, sing some stuff. Strippograms. Oh. Well, that's for a different podcast. So, Tim, uh, so what I like about the sequence, and it'll carry on, is it's it creates this sense of of uh, menace, as if Mr. Bird is outside the window at this very moment, like Tintin looking at the look at it, he's looking at the telegram in the most suspicious sort of way. He's got his eyebrow, he's frowning at it, and then two days later they're on a plane. Poor Snowy, though, by the way, with his <laughs> bum paw down below. Oh, he's hurt his paw, and this and the scowling, mean Siamese cat. Stalking behind him, about to, uh, yeah, he's he's the boss of that well, joint. He's he, not giving him any. He kind of did it to himself. It's hard to feel too sorry for him. But okay. that's true. That's true. He makes his own problems. Now, when it says two days later, yeah. he said like we're leaving at once. Does this mean the flight to this place is so far that it will take two days to get there by plane? No, it probably took two days for them to to book the flight and get all their stuff together and get to the airport. Really. Well, they're not going to be flying every day, probably, to these places. I Okay, I disagree. I think what this is saying is that the, the amount of planes that you need to transfer on to get to where they're going. No, because two he, days? Yes, because he's saying here, no need to take the bags upstairs, Nestor. We're leaving at once. And then it's two days later. Yeah. Uh, they're on the flight, and no one's going, oh, that took a long time, longer than I thought. It's There's none of that. Well, they so probably had to... You know, he's at Marlin Spike, so it's it's a rural area, right? right. So they have to take... They have to get from Marlin Spike right. back to... To the city. So they probably stayed in a hotel, booked their flight. Okay. Then the next day, their flight. So it's two days later. The whole whole procedure, yeah. Two days later. Not that it took two days to book a flight, and now they're on a flight. Yeah. All right. So uh, so, uh, the captain's uh, (laughs) saying. Let me settle that, everyone. Yeah. Well, no, it (laughs) sounds like everything. It sounds. You know what we're talking about, right, folks? We're only on page two. Uh, You know, they're. uh, We can kind of skip because they're just sitting. Because complaining about mineral water. Complaining about mineral water, yes, because they the the nat- the national product of Sylvia is mineral water, which uh, the captain is not in favor of. In fact, uh, he orders a whiskey. Uh, the uh, steward s of the stewardess, yes, flight attendant. Uh, at the time, that's what they called them then. Now they're stewards. Uh, but back then, they were flight attendants. Uh, was is pouring a little of the mineral water into his whiskey, and he ain't having any of that. No siree. That time they're called air nurses. Um, is is that no, correct? It's not true. But they did have to have nurse nurses training. Okay. Very early on, yeah. It made the pe- passengers feel sky safer. wenches was what they were sky, called back then. <laughs> sky harlots. The uh, that's a bit far. Was it? Did it go too yep. far? Yeah, mine still was like a serving yeah, situation, yeah, and right, you took it right, in a very different direction. Yeah, sorry. Anyway, let's go for two I hours. I apologize later. to everyone. I meant uh, the actress. <laughs> the actress Sky Harlot, <laughs> that famous actress. No, Harlow. Oh, okay. All right. Though Sky Harlot is a good name for an actress. <laughs> uh, so the plane lands. And the captain's wondering if Calculus is going to be uh, there to meet meet them. Nope, no dice. Uh, they go through customs. Oh, uh, and the captain's uh, luggage is full of liquor. Uh, <laughs> Whiskey. Heavy import duty. <laughs> Only mineral water allowed here in Sildavia. No wonder he doesn't like it. No, it was 875 cores. Import yeah. duty. But if you're a raging alcoholic, what are you going to do? Not pay? Not pay, exactly. And we all know how much Michael Kors... Uh, purse designs are so it's a lot of money for this. I have no idea what a core is. Uh, so 
Yes, he's very upset. What I, so they keep, they continue with this sense of menace because uh, suddenly they're kind of being shepherded almost against their will into this car. Right. Well, here's yeah. the thing. Anytime I've seen Tintin show his passport in the past, it usually means he's in jail on the next page. Mm-hmm. You know, he never has a good time going through customs, this no, guy. No. But this case seems to be sort of fine. Uh, he's being yeah, shepherded into a car. Be right. It's a little bit of menace there. And a couple, a couple of people are watching them, and they say, you know, they've been picked up by Zeppo. Zeppo have picked them up already. Yeah. They're joining the mammoth, so we don't know what exactly is going on. Yeah, I like the design of the two guys in hats. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Looks a bit like Steve Allen, the one guy to me. Uh, <laughs> it's like a, it's a cameo for Steve Allen. And yeah, so then they're driving through uh, Soldavia, which which I think is kind of based in, in Yugoslavia. Mm-hmm. Uh, things look kind of suspicious. Very bumpy roads. They're being followed by a car. Yeah, they get they go through another checkpoint. Yeah, uh, you know uh, things things are rough there. Uh, uh, captain's saying how thirsty he is. Really thirsty. Wants to have a drink. But they give him mineral water. Captain isn't in favor of that. They open the <laughs> mineral water. Gets squirted in his face. Bunch of good shtick uh, going through. He calls them a tribe of Polynesians. And we're going now a half hour later. And another checkpoint, but this checkpoint uh, looks like a flying checkpoint. Looks like a helicopter comes down. Yeah. To check them out, that's pretty uh, cool. It's an interesting helicopter as well. It doesn't have the the rear rotor, mm-hmm. so it's just kind of a. I'm not too sure what. I wish I maybe I should have looked it up. I'm sorry. So they I... keep going along, even more. Nothing but checkpoints. More checkpoints. They they're they're uh, they're they're going up to like uh, through a village, uh, through a set of doors. And when you open the this set of doors, we're now going uh, through a tunnel. Uh, looks like a very modern tunnel. There's a lot of confusion from Tintin and the captain. Uh, the doors automatically close behind them. Other uh, doors automatically in, opening in front, like it was Get Smart. <laughs> yes. Uh, till uh, till you know a, a scientist-looking fellow comes up and goes, "Here you are, gentlemen. Uh, at, at last, it's about time too." Says the captain, uh, s- standing up too fast in the car and smacking his head. Not for the last time in this story. <laughs> a lot of head smacks. Uh, and uh, and yes. uh, introductions are made. Let me introduce myself. I'm Frank Wolf, assistant engineer to Professor Calculus. Hmm, okay, fair enough. Uh, and uh, the captain says, how do you do? Uh, I'd like to know where we are and who those gangsters are who followed us from the airport. Gangsters, captain. These are zero men. And that is highlighted, the zero. I think you mean Zeppo. Zeppo men. I'm so sorry. Zeppo yeah. men. Yeah, what sort of creature is a Zeppo? You'll see, Captain. Professor Calculus will explain everything. Come, it's waiting for you. So they take the lift, uh, the elevator, and unfortunately, uh, Snowy gets caught in there, too. Yes. Poor as, little Snowy. As and then a nice uh, device to show the floor they get to, having the uh, the little, uh, um, I guess what we'd see above the elevator. You know, the numbers. Se- yeah, sequentially, the numbers, but also the little light that would light up when it got to the floor so. and when they get to the top they look uh, through a window i couldn't into remember an the office, word light and it looks like and you see calculus there wearing some sort of uh, glass bowl over his head a uh, gentleman looks like he's about to hit him with a uh, molnir thor's hammer yeah <laughs> uh, gives him a whack on the noodle but uh no problems no problems it's a good, there at it's all. a good cliffhanger though for yeah to come to that page uh, Captain yeah. and uh, Tintin uh, come in, asking, "Oh, uh, what are you doing?" And uh, it's uh, he's very happy to see his old friend, Captain Haddock. Goes up to give him a hug, but because he's still wearing the helmet, smacks him in the face, which is a good bit of shtick. Yes, yes. I what uh, this is would be like the helmets would be one of uh, Hergé's, uh having to bend the rules for the for the fiction of the story, like the actual helmets that they would have needed or they would have used, would not have been one clear plexiglass helmet. Right. But it would have been weird to not be able to see anybody, you know. It just would have been hard It'd to be have a, a tell visual, a story. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that that element, kind of like in the film uh, The Abyss. 
So they're saying they were testing the uh, helmet's endurance. It went uh, went very very well. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and Tintin asks, "What's the uh, helmet uh, meant for?" And this part I loved, uh, which is uh, Calculus takes out a little ear horn so he can <laughs> finally hear everybody. Yes. So that device of "I can't hear you" goes away when uh, he's got it. It's great. Yeah. It's great. It's a it's a nice sensible. There's a lot of sensible in this, which I appreciate. Which is just like, you know that silly thing? Stop doing that silly thing. Fix that problem. Stop. Hey, hey, Mr. Magoo, here's a pair of glasses. Now you can see. Knock it off. Which <laughs> no, I like. No sense of humor. I do have a sense of humor, but after I... the same joke 17 times, it's about time to get an ear horn, <laughs> which he does. So now he can uh, so now he can hear with the uh, ear ear trumpet. He mentions, you know, he's only uh, hard of hearing in one ear. That is not true at all. That's some denial. Uh, and uh, and finally, the captain's like, "Where the heck are we?" Oh, Mr. Wolf didn't tell you. Well, I'll explain, but not before. We cut uh, to seeing, meanwhile, in Clow, you know, uh, the bad guys going. In short, we haven't made much progress. We know the Mammoth Project is going ahead, uh, but uh, just how far? That's the problem. The only precise information we managed to get us is this complete list of employees from the main workshop. Our agent K27 in the Ministry photographed it on microfilm. Hmm. So bad guys. Back to good but, guys. But yes, but the interesting thing here is that obviously he sees a name on the list that he knows that they can exploit. Ah, very good. So, because he says, K27 has not wasted his, his time, my dear Baron. So they, we know that, uh, you know, that this guy has seen a name on there that, that rings a bell. So let's just go to the next page where Calculus takes them into a room to look through the, the, the window to, and they see the Atomic Research Center, Sprodge Atomic Research Center, based on Oak Ridge, which was uh, the first... Uh, atomic Research Center in the United States. Okay, uh, that was part of the Manhattan Project. Yeah, it's a very nicely drawn image of looking through the uh, the, the window at the, those mountains in the center. So yes. why don't you? Uh, this is a bit of an information dump. I'll throw it over your way. <laughs> well, yes, because what he tells them is well, what the same what Oak Ridge was for. Eh? Oak Ridge had the first X10 graphite reactor that provided plutonium for the Manhattan Project, and the same thing here. They're using this research facility as a way to create fuel for this this rocket. So uh, he, what Calculus talks about is the fact that the specialists in nuclear physics were recruited from many countries and the work began. And it goes without saying that all the reach, research here is for humanitarian purposes. So maybe they're also creating uh, medical grade um, radioactive isotopes, I guess. Yeah. They use for, uh, but no question. So they, obviously, this, RJ wanted to make it clear that there's no bombs That's in this, right, in this yeah. facility. This is purely a scientific research facility. Good guys all the way around. Yeah. yeah. And so... <laughs> he's been uh calculus talks about how the fact that uh what this is for this is an astronautical section and what they're proposing to do is to land on the moon which haddock thinks is hilarious he begins to laugh and laugh oh i haven't laughed so much for years on the moon <laughs> he's quite serious about it you old humbug calculus <laughs> you are taking passengers i hope of course why else do you think i'd ask you to join me <laughs> yes lots of lots of question marks and, and exclamation and the captain's so the furious he puts down alcohol to uh, yell yeah to yell at him what, what are you saying on the moon with you blistering particles your brain's gone radioactive on the moon and then of course because uh, of this incident uh calculus has mistaken um t haddock's pipe for his horn and is holding the pipe to his ear so he says oh thank you captain uh thank you i knew i could count on you and this one section uh, it shows one of the problems with having a lot of detail in a, in a scene is that there's supposed to be a line showing that Haddock's sort of fainting backwards. Yes. But it's very obscured by this window that's behind. It almost looks like there's a chart there. Yeah. 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 And it's just a, 
sometimes you too can, much busy work. Too right? much busy work in the background. Yeah, and I found that uh, in parts of Prisoners of the Sun as well. As there's parts where there's just too much stuff behind them, and you. you too much focus is on the background. This is the thing sometimes when you get a separate person to do backgrounds. You this, get, uh, this time it was Hergé still by was himself. Was this still doing yeah. Hergé? Oh, yeah. well, then. Mm, okay. But I found that with like when when some people just do the backgrounds, the backgrounds then become a bit too ornate and can take you out of the mm-hmm. main story and mm-hmm. don't serve the story itself. Yeah, because they're not interested in the story. They're interested in their backgrounds. Right. So uh, now we're introducing uh, Mr. Baxter. Yes. That's right. Uh, may the guy I... you think is the villain. Yes, because he looks kind of villainy. Yeah. He's like, eh. Yeah. Uh, you know, he's, uh, and uh, Calculus says, oh, the captain's most enthusiastic. He says, he and our good friend Tintin will be delighted to travel to the moon. <laughs> uh, and so uh, happy happiness all around with the captain sputtering and not sure. And, oh, boy. Uh, while a bunch of compliments are thrown at him and Tintin about oh, your good spirit and whatnot. And, oh, good on you. Uh, but it's getting late and you had a tiring day. We'll show you your rooms. And tomorrow the professor will take you around the center. Fair enough. So... Uh, night falls. All is quiet. Uh, of course, down... the, by the way, the captain is holding uh, C- Professor Calculus' uh, ear horn in his hand as if it was a pipe. That's right. Which, by the way, is gross. <laughs> yeah, sure. He's been putting that in his ear. Also, putting a pipe in your ear, an actual pipe with tobacco in your ear, probably isn't very healthy for you either. That's also gross. All right. So uh, down the... <laughs> it's just gross all the way around. Yeah. Uh, night falls. All is quiet down the long, silent corridor. Guards are on uh, patrol. Uh, the guards are there walking down. They definitely that's a look real, like guards. That's a real E.P. Jacobs uh, <laughs> caption, i got to say. I know. I want these guys to have their own spin-off series. <laughs> uh, nothing to report. Everything's fine. Except by St. Vladimir. Smoke! Uh, so the fire brigade inside the facility. Uh, yeah, they have the cutest little uh, cars. Looks like they're on an amusement ride, actually. Yeah, it's good. Amusement uh, park ride. They, they got this all going on. Uh, they, they try to wake up uh, Calculus. Uh, who can't hear the alarm bell. That's dangerous when you're deaf. That's when being deaf isn't funny, yeah. is uh, when the alarm goes off. Uh, the, uh, and uh, Tintin mentions, oh my gosh, uh, to Calculus, uh, you can't hear because you've got the captain's pipe. The captain's pipe. Well, I never. It's the captain's pipe. I thought I wasn't hearing very well. Uh, the fire folk go in, use the foam, and cover the captain in foam. And we see the mix-up. What's, what's kind of funny with this sequence is that the fact that that, that kind of fire extinguisher sprays carbon dioxide. So it's basically the spraying, the spraying Captain Haddock with dry ice. Mm. So you know, a temperature of minus seventy nine degrees Celsius being sprayed onto you, <laughs> not fun. I don't think he'd be yelling at them. I think he'd be rolling around on the ground. But still, seems like uh, he seems he's fine. Yes. Uh, so let's just go to the next morning. Okay. All right. The pro- uh, so uh, the professor, uh, who's that gentleman's name again? The uh, is it Wolf? Wolf. Yes. Wolf. Uh, Wolf is saying to Tintin and uh, Haddock, Professor asked me to give you this. Uh, he's rather busy himself this morning, so he suggests that I take around the center. I better put on these overalls. Here's a pipe that someone's had in their ear. <laughs> you know what? I bet they have a way of cleaning things there. I think you're fine. So they put on the uh, the the suit. Oh, first of all, they explain what a zeppo is. Yeah. Uh, zeppo. Zeppo. Uh, Zekret uh, Politz. Secret They're, police. They yeah. are special police responsible for guarding the atomic area, for anti-sabotage precautions, and for counter-espionage. So that's what Zeppo is. Now you all know. Not just a brother in the Marx Brothers. Now, meanwhile, we see the bad guys uh, sending in a code. Uh, send this code in, my dear Baron. Uh, sends in the code. In contact uh, with the top level of the main workshop. Back to uh, the, the tour going on. 
showing Tintin and Captain and Snowy the central uh, laboratories where the natural uranium, which comes to us in thin metal rods, is converted into plutonium. Plutonium will be used to power uh, Calculus's rocket. There you go. So yeah. here's a here's a graphite reactor. Now we're gonna it- go put on some special suits. Uh, and uh, they they have a nice big one for not big one. It is a big one actually. It's a little too big. Too big for, for him, Snowy. Yeah. yeah. So it's time for Snowy to wear an adorable uh, outfit. They, they thought he was a Labrador to protect them from radioactivity. And we walk into the uh, radio, radio the atomic pile. In and the original, a beautiful the, shot of the yeah atomic yeah. Pile. In the Tintin magazine version, the suits were blue instead of orange. Okay. I don't. I think it's better as orange is more stands out more. And then this and this page was different too. Like in the original one. This, the drawing by Hergé was it was narrower, so there were panels down the side. And basically, what happened was the original it was originally two pages, and in the this book they stretched it out to three. So he was he had way more panels on the page of people talking. Okay. Um, when Haddock trips, he trips over. He doesn't trip over the rail the the rails that the uh, that this whatever it is rides along. This part of the reactor, the thing that's taking the rods out, I guess. Right. Uh, out of the pile, he trips over. There's something laying on the floor. It's just weird. Like, this is much better. Because the other yeah, one, it's yeah. just like someone left something laying on the floor of a nuclear reactor. Do they not have safety pr- procedures here? And it makes sense, too, the captain uh, would, would trip because he's looking up at this amazing device. Yeah, and then in the, in the original version, Snowy doesn't say the line. The captain says the line. It pulls me over. That's what I meant to say. And I think it's better with, with uh, Snowy just saying it sort of, yep. well, he looks like a seal. <laughs> so they're explaining uh, how uh, the atomic pile and everything works. So we can go through that if you want, or just move along. Yeah, we don't need to. Yeah, either. the captain's pretending I mean, it's, he it's gets all, it. Yeah, that is fun. Like, well, we can talk about that a little bit, because I like the fact that, uh, well, when Wolf's talking, he says, when an atom of U-235 splits, it releases two or three neutrons. One or either of these will be absorbed by an atom of U-238, which will thus be transmuted into plutonium. But those other neutrons, where will they go? And then Haddock says, yes, I'm worried about them. Just stuff like that, where it's just kind of, it keeps you, keeps it light. So you're not feeling buried by all this information because it's actually, it's accurate. It's not just gobbledygook. This is all scientifically I accurate. I know, but I, I do like uh, Haddock, just like he's at a party, just trying to, you know, and the political situation. Mm, yes, the political situation. Uh, you know, the prime minister feels very sorry. Yeah, I f- he should feel sorry. And, you know, you're just trying to pretend like you're catching up. Uh, they're interrupted by Calculus uh, saying that he has lost his uh, plan. Oh, not lost, but he feels his plans have been stolen. So uh, back they go, forgetting to take Snowy out of his radiation suit. Just to point out that uh, on these pages, a lot of this, a lot of the backgrounds were drawn by Bob Demore because they were redrawn for for the album. Okay. Uh, just because I think the problem was is that Explorers on the Moon, that part was so big. And this part was a little shorter, and so in order to make both books 62 pages long, he had to add a few pages to this. So he some of the pages that were <clears throat> incredibly compacted and had a lot of information being being discussed, he wanted he stretched them out a little bit to allow for just for sense. more information and less and less cramming. So the worry right now is that uh, apparently uh, inside uh, the calculus is safe. He found old newspapers instead of plans. Well, that that looks pretty bad. Until Tintin uh, looking into the trash realizes that uh, he threw out, like he misplaced that he put newspapers yeah. in the safe, he put the plans in the trash. So this guy doesn't just have problems with his hearing. Something's, no, he's, he's an absent-minded professor. You yeah. yeah, don't have to say absent-minded. He's a professor. Ipso facto, absent-minded. They oh, go together. terrifies me then. If they go together like all soup. All professors are like Like soup that. and salt, they go together. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, that, that all goes on. And then it's time now to take a look at the actual rocket itself, the XFLR. This isn't the actual rocket itself. This is oh, a test sorry. rocket. Okay, test rocket. This is rocket, a smaller version, yeah. Yes. 
This one looks very much like the V2 rocket that that um, almost all... I was confused because the design... It's very similar. The checker pattern yeah, is very yeah. distinct. Well, it kind of has two two things. Like So both the rockets, this rocket and... But this one, most of all, are based in the, v, v, the V2. Like Basically, this is an exact replica of the, of the V2 rocket, um, which um, Hergé... The other spaceship, the, the bigger spaceship, it's inspired by the V2, but it also has a lot of inspiration from kind of classic sci-fi illustrations of the 30s. Um, unlike a lot of those with, with their four finned, this one only has three. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit different. But other than that, it's very much inspired by those. Uh, and so now when he was doing research on it, he found a picture of the V2 rocket that had a checkerboard pattern on it, which he really liked. So he duplicated it into the, when he was, when he designed the rocket, the reason they had a checkerboard pattern on rockets was because it would give a visual identification of, of how the rocket was moving during lo- the launch. Oh, that's So a they good could see idea. if it was good... spinning. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah. makes sense. And so uh, the reason it's red and white was at the same time, uh, France had its own rocketry program called uh, the Veronique program, and their rockets were red and white. And so he kind of combined that checkerboard with the red and white okay. of the Veronique program. I just thought it made sense because if you're going up against a blue sky, you, what are you going to spot? Mm-hmm. You're going to spot red and red and white. Yeah, but I, I don't know. If, yeah, yeah. And so when he was designing the rocket, um, Hergé, he... Made, he drew all these plans, and then he had an assistant, this guy named Arthur Van Noyen, construct a model of the spaceship. So it's basically the first three levels of this of the spaceship. It's quite large; it's about maybe two and a half feet tall, and it could be taken apart from every side. So you could, oh, wow. if you're like, well, what if Tintin's standing here? What would he see? And so you could pull out that wall, and you could see, you could take a picture or 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 visually look at and sketch the actual part of the spaceship so when bob demur was doing the backgrounds he could pull apart the ship and get these exact images uh and just draw out exactly what was behind them and so there was no sense of of you know having to figure out where they were in 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 the actual you know physical reality of this of the spaceship on the on the uh, thingy so when he when he was finished the model he actually took it to paris to visit aronoff the guy who wrote uh astronautics to show to him and kind of get any tips or and kind of get his approval like so he could kind of sign off and say yeah this would work as a spaceship yeah and and did he yeah nice all right so uh we're getting explanations on how uh you know uh, the whole thing works sort of it's like a nuclear bomb but instead of an instantaneous 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 boy what's a hard word for me to say explosion the force is spread out over several days yeah gives him the breakdown now because we need a little bit of shtick he trips over a wire uh falls towards some wet paint hits the guy the wet paint goes uh spraying into haddock's face because, you know, every so often you need some of that. Interesting. In the original version, the sequence is kind of different. It's similar, same. But as, as calculus is falling forward, there's a guy. You don't see Tintin. You don't see Haddock, I'm sorry. You see a guy carrying a grating. And so then when, when Haddock smashes into the guy with the, with the spray can, he sprays it through the grating. And then you see Haddock, and he's standing there, and he has these diagonal stripes on him. Oh, okay. Rather than, it's actually, this is a better version. Like, this is improved. It's way better with the full-on, like, completely covered yeah. in red than just with a few... You know, three or four stripes. Of, yeah, I of could sort of see it. If it was the checkerboard pattern, then he looks like the rocket <laughs> itself. Uh, yeah, no. So then uh, we get over the a week goes by. Then one night, uh, radar to control emergency aircraft from uh, south violating the security area. Attention, yeah. please. Control calling emergency. Uh, so, uh, yep, there's a, there's an airline coming in, and I'll throw it back over to you. Yes. Yeah, so okay, we have the plane. Everyone's trying to contact. It is a problem with these sort of things when a plane is flying, and you know it's the enemy. Mm-hmm. But everyone wants to make sure they, don't, they they have to contact this plane. 
Like it's as if there's no defense against planes flying over your base because you're spending all your time trying to contact this person. You just don't want to shoot him out of the sky in case it's someone who just is lost. You don't know. Yeah. So what if meanwhile, it's the queen? they're not lost. Yeah. They parachute out. Two parachutes come out. Well, three parachutes come out. One does not open though. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, and so then they, they hear the uh, they hear the ACAC fires are firing on this plane, and then Calculus, who's sleeping, of course, without his horn in his ear, there's an incredible bang. And then uh, because, to, there's a credible bang because because yes oh yeah this shrapnel comes or I guess it looks like a unexploded unexploded shell. shell comes down and uh, explodes in the professor's room blowing him out so he's he's laying in his bed on some on some wires electrical wires sleeping still yeah doesn't seem scientifically he can't sound anything you're right it is dangerous to be deaf that's not funny that's very serious let's just go to the next morning so the next morning Baxter is giving a uh, that Baxter I don't know about him he's giving <laughs> a uh, He's giving a talk about what happened, saying that an unidentified aircraft flew over. Yes, you're right. Three parachutists came out. One chute didn't open. He fell to his death. The other two have landed and are, have disappeared. They don't know where they are. Uh, meanwhile, we finally get uh, we finally find out that Calculus' ear trumpet is blocked, which is why he's been having some trouble. And he unblocks it into into Baxter's nose, which <laughs> Haddock is so excited by because it's not his nose. Yeah, I like that he finally goes like, hey, that stuff normally happens to me. There's a little deconstruction in a lot of, in this where it's like, you know, yes. you're deaf all the time. Well, then use a, this horn. Hey, you fall too much. You should stop falling all the time. Hey, that usually happens to me in business. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, then they, a few minutes later, who comes to visit but our friends, the Thompsons. Now, here's where, here's, this is weird to me. I can see as fans, you would call them the Thompson twins. Yeah. But they're not twins. Yeah. I didn't say, did I say Thompson twins? No. Oh. The Snowy does in this panel. Oh, yeah. The, that's, that was, a, that was off-putting for me because it's like, yeah. they're not twins. No. They have different names. They yeah. just happen to resemble each other. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I, I get that Snowy, you know, is doing a little push here, uh, turns to us and goes, this is it. Sensational appearance of the Thompson twins. Yeah. Which, you know, it's different. kind of funny, but like, you can't, you could say it almost verbally, mm-hmm. but you can't say it then because one has a P, one doesn't. So that doesn't, the yeah. joke doesn't make sense actually. It doesn't, that. it doesn't say it in the French version either. It doesn't say that. It doesn't call them the DuPont twins, so. So boo on the American translation of that English, or English, English translation. translation yeah. the, I'm going to blame Americans. Is it Americans doing it? Yes, you can blame America. All right, very good. Uh, and then we get the bit, little bit. Of course, we know the Thompsons. They if they're they are to, not the parachutists. They're not the parachutists because if they did that, they would die. But also, uh, we also know that they love to dress up in costume. So they've come there in Sil- they, what they think is Sildavian costumes. It turns out it's they're dressed as Greeks. <laughs> That's right. They're elaborately dressed in Greek it costume. It is a very funny outfit. It's very funny, and also the fact that these are the sort of costumes you wear when you're doing traditional dance. Yes. There's no Greek person walking around wearing these in the streets. Anywhere. Anywhere. Ever. So, uh, yes. Baxter's a little suspicious, but it turns out they uh, have their pa- their papers, and they are... Uh, oh, their papers were stolen on the train. Uh, so, the two men you arrested are not the parachutists. Continue the search because Tintin can vouch for them. Right, it's the opposite of what usually happens. Usually, what happens is Tintin gets in trouble, <laughs> and these two try to vouch for Tintin, but it's like too bad we're throwing him in jail. Yeah, this is like Tintin. Look, this is there. It basically here's the thing: they come in. Snowy turns to us in, in yeah. the English version, yeah. and goes, "Hey, folks, it's these guys! Yay! All right." And they come in, do the thing they do, and then Tintin explains, "Look, this is the kind of thing they do." We're not going to have them in the story too much. Don't worry about it. But we got to use them. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. Fine. 
But yeah, I think as you said last time, they're, they're the bloom is off the Thompsons' rose. Yeah, they just they'll from forever on they'll they'll appear and disappear. Because you don't want speed. You, they wouldn't work in this story because you don't want shenanigans and screw ups yeah. when it comes to a rocket. Because then you'll die. Yeah. Everything's so precise, and you've got uranium. You don't want funny uranium business. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Unless uh, you're the Simpsons, in which case uh, maybe you do. And who am I to judge? I work in that field. Um, so, so, it, so we move on to the page. And if you're impressed by... Before, before oh, we move on, though, it looks like... Ugh. It almost looks like right now Tintin's pulling a Hergé. You know, he's in the middle of an adventure and just goes, you know what, I think I'd like to just take a trip into the mountains for a few days and uh, take off. Sure, nothing wrong with leaving in the middle of something very important. Yeah. Off you go. Well, just, he's not really doing very much You himself, stretch though. your legs. You go have uh, all the time you need, Hergé. I mean, Tintin. Go for a walk. But we find out Tintin's actually got a reason for doing this. And I was going to say that if you like Hergé's seascapes, you also have to love his, his uh, mountainscapes. I love how he does rocks so yes. much. Uh, we have Tintin walking up into the hills. He's looking down over the base. He sees down into the Atomic Research Center. He sees the, the, the launching area, but he does not know what it is yet. Does he see the launch area? Can he see it from here? Let's see. I don't think he can, actually. Nope. Interesting. I guess it's not, not up yet. So he's looking at a map of the facility. He's trying to figure a out. ventilator. Yeah, he's got two ideas of where uh, he thinks that there's going to be a rendezvous. And he, he's of two different points that are unguarded. One, they're both ventilator shafts. One is uh, impossible to reach. The other one is, uh, is easily accessible. So he goes to climb up. But then we come to this really cute sequence where as he's climbing up, he hears uh, Snowy barking. And he climbs back down. And there's a bear cub that's pawing at his knapsack. And he's like, oh, I must be attracted to the smell of the honey sandwiches in my knapsack. And then we go, what were you thinking, Tintin? Honey sandwiches yeah. in bear country. Why are you, what are we doing that for? What's wrong, what's wrong with you? But then, I, what are you thinking now? Why are you giving the bear the honey sandwich? Yeah, don't feed the bear. Yeah. You know, th- there's nothing right about what Tintin does in the next little while. <laughs> so <laughs> now, infinite amount of bears show up. Uh, of all, many different bear races, it looks like. Many different colors yeah, of many bears. Different colors of bear. And they all kind of look like they're just bears that are like... They're like, I just was thinking of them as peanut butter bears. Yes, they just stepped off the craft. They just stepped off the craft. <laughs> yeah. It's like these cute little bears. They're like little, they're little Ruperts without his clothes. Yep. If you go out in the woods today, this is what you're going to see. Yeah. And then the grumpy bear parents show up, which is really trouble. Like yeah. if, if, if this was in any way to do with reality, yeah. Tintin's dead now. The parents have showed up. Bears are all, little bears are all around t- uh, Tintin. Angry mom and dad yeah. are there. Uh, yeah, so Tintin hucks the sandwiches down the mountain, yeah. and uh, all the bears leave him. That's not going to happen. You're going to be you're, you're going to be killed. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but these bears are too cute. They're not killer bears. They're just peanut butter bears. So they go. Oh, by, the, by the way, they go on a roly poly trip down the mountain. How many sandwiches does Tintin need? It looks like he's got four sandwiches there. Was there all day? He already he hiked up in the morning. He's going to stay stay overnight. And he got four honey sandwiches. Well, okay. That's by the way. That's a food from the past, huh? A honey sandwich. You don't have honey sandwiches? Do you have honey peanut sandwiches? Peanut butter and honey is very good. You yeah. have a peanut butter for honey yeah. sandwiches. You yeah. can't do that. It's like cannibalism. It's those bears from the peanut butter jar. Right, you can't do that. <laughs> All right. So uh, so it's quick snowy. Now's our chance to give them the slip. Make a way up. It has to be the white pasteurized honey, though. I don't like the uh, the golden honey kind of stuff. Very good. If you're making Dave a honey sandwich. Yeah. just I'm just putting that out there. If you're going to send honey sandwiches in the mail. And you can because honey does not go bad. That's true. Please do not. And send bread me. doesn't go bad too, right? Bread is fine. <laughs> Months on end, it is fine. <laughs> okay. Anywho, 
Tintin goes Night Falls. Night Falls, that's right. Tintin contacts the captain, actually. Let's just mention that. Tintin has a walkie-talkie the size of a phone booth. Contacts the captain. He's being eavesdropped on by one of the Thompsons. By one of the Thompsons, yes. I always want to call him a Dupont, but yes, one of the one of the Thompsons. Either way is fine. Are you going, by the way, from an English version I went today by the English version because it's so dense, the text in this, that I just I thought, I just knew I was going to have trouble paraphrasing Yeah, you don't want like, uranium and yeah, you know, electrons. Yeah. All right, so uh, t- so Tintin's hanging outside of the ventilator. Uh, sees one of the parachutists, but where's the other? Mm-hmm. He's approaching the grating. Uh, someone's handing him papers. Okay, now's the moment to join. Uh, to join in, uh, saying, hands up, but bang, goes a shot, and Tintin uh, has been struck. Where, when, how, we do not know. Another great uh, cliffhanger. cliffhanger. Yeah. On a cliff. But th- it's a good An cliffhanger. An actual cliffhanger on a cliff. But this is a weird, to me, this is a weird transition from that sequence, from him getting shot. Yeah. Then we go to a scene in the dark. There's, no, there's no setup to what what's happening in the dark. Like We don't, we don't know like, who is talking. We don't know anything about it. We, this year, there's a shot. From outside, I, hey, I've got someone. Oh, I've lost him. We hear barking. Got him again. Quick, help me. Hold him. Where are you? Ah, there. Let me go. Here, let me go. It's me, Frank Wolf. So we don't know what's happening in this sequence. Well, it could, here's the thing. Uh, we've, we've got the bad guy being handed something through the vent. Yeah. Okay. The vent in, inside the vent is dark. You hear bang, but bang sounds like it's coming from behind Tintin. Yeah. It would actually make sense if the shot was coming from inside the vent. Outwards, that might make a bit of sense. But no, it isn't. Yeah, you're right. It makes no sense. Anyway, well, so it's a weird dark. cut because it's Thompson and Thompson talking, and they've they've caught Frank Wolf. But we we didn't know that they were going to be there doing that. Yeah, there's I'm... no setup of them saying let's hide in the hallway or let's spy on Captain Haddock and see what's right. You just heard yeah. him over. Oh, he one of them was overhearing. Uh, we do the see that, but, but, but they don't really set up that they're in the hallway or what's happening. So you just get right. this weird cut to that sequence. So they grab uh, Wolf. Uh, who's saying, uh, no, 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 uh, it's, it's just me. Uh, the person you want has uh, got away. And uh, then they spot someone lying down. It's the captain. You know, he's been knocked out. Uh, then in comes, what's this fellow's name again? Mr. Baxter. Baxter, right. You know, what's the meaning of this hullabaloo? <laughs> Which is a good thing to say. Uh, yeah. Someone, uh, Something must have happened to Tintin, says the captain, because you can hear uh, Snowy uh, howling. He's out there near the ventilator grid. So now we're checking up on that. And the captain gives an exposition dump. And I always like to throw those over to you. Oh, well, oh, thank you. <laughs> so the captain, this explains the fact that Tintin had the suspicion that there's someone working inside the plant uh, would be meeting these these spies who parachuted in. And so his plan was to find the rendezvous point in order to intercept this meeting. Uh, so now Haddock's role in this was to hide in the in the... Uh, where the meeting was on the other side of where the meeting was supposed to be so he could capture the person who did the exchange. Unfortunately, uh, he got knocked unconscious. The lights were turned out and no one saw what any, anything that was happening in this in the sequence. Although and Baxter was very close to this. So. Oh, well, Baxter, who we think is bad. Uh, just then the uh, both the Thompsons uh, belch, uh, bubbles come out, yes. uh, saying, oh, uh, we took some extraordinary pills in the land of the black gold. A little callback. Yeah, and uh, the effect uh, returns sometimes. Now, when I read that, now, I don't know what happens in the next issue. I don't know if the Thompsons end up in space. I don't know what goes down. But here's the only thing I can see, and I'm just taking a guess here as to what could happen with that. Because they turn green. Now, things are coming from space. I could see them being mistaken for, like, Martians or something, maybe coming back from space. I'm like, anything come back with you? And uh, then they're all green and hairy and uh, that kind of business. Uh, why else would you have two characters who can just turn green for no reason? <laughs> anyway, maybe that happens, maybe that doesn't. Probably doesn't. It's science. But it's is it is it science? The kind of science that makes your hair grow uh, feet, a couple of feet in a day? Anyway. So uh, magic, there we are. The magic phone, science. The phone rings. 
Baxter picks it up. Hello, what? You found him? He's hurt? What'd he say? Oh, he's unconscious? In the sick bay? You're waiting for the doctor? I should stop repeating everything you say and just get on with it? <laughs> All right, I'm coming here. I'm coming your way. <laughs> Thank uh, you for that exposition, Mr. Baxter. That's right. It's just... All I can get on this phone is exposition. What? <laughs> uh, uh, one of the Thompsons says, if we may, Mr. Baxter, we'll stay here. We might pick up some clues. Yeah, right. So, uh, so You think so? I like yeah. this. And they start Gosh. examining the vent, the Thompson and Thompson. Uh, they notice a, jar, uh, a door that's ajar. Uh, go inside of it. Uh, turn a light switch on. Don't really understand what all the paraphernalia is. Uh, and we have uh, we have a good bit of business, kind of a silent film bit of business. Yeah. Where one keeps walking by the X-ray, and the other one keeps seeing a skeleton. Yeah, in no way is it how an X-ray machine works, but it is fun anyway. No, if it did work like this, they would die of radiation <laughs> if it was like on consistently in that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so yeah, which all leads to them going into a, a room and arresting a skeleton. Yeah. Yeah. Walking off saying, you needn't pretend to be dead, my friend. You've had it this time. So these guys are now, again, we were talking about the different levels of dumb. Yeah. Okay, they're now full dumb. (laughs) They're arresting a skeleton. Yeah. Interestingly enough, this page, the page where they arrest the skeleton was not in the magazine version. Okay. It ends at them looking around trying to find the skeleton with them standing behind the x-ray. And we see that they, what they saw. Mm -hmm. And we know what it means. But they, of course, don't because they're at that level of ultra dumb. Yep. So that's the way it is. Anyway, meanwhile, cut back to the villains, uh, who's enjoying a bottle of liquor, uh, listening to the radio, calling KM2, calling KM2, first mission completed, first mission completed. Oh, all right, we'll have their rocket now. Mm. Meanwhile. The plot thickens. Mm -hmm. So meanwhile, uh, Dr. Patella, we know his name is Dr. Patella because that's the room the the, uh, Thompsons were taking the skeleton from, his room. Uh, So, of course, he's a doctor, so his name is Patella. Sure, why not? So then we get a, an explanation from Tintin what happened. We already saw it, of course, so we don't know why we needed the game. But and then uh, yeah, nothing serious. Bullet Haddock, the skull. Haddock is so mad that he pulls the chair that Baxter's sitting on apart so that Baxter falls on the floor. Yeah, that's pretty strong to be able to like pull a chair apart in that way, like just tear it. And know? then he offers to get another chair, which Baxter says no need. One is enough, I think. And then uh, meanwhile, Erge, or sorry, Tintin. God, I always do that. Tintin says. Uh, <laughs> Not only did Erge mix himself up with Tintin, I mix Erge up with Tintin. Mm-hmm. Tintin says, says it won't be easy because now that the spies have, you know, done what they need to do, they're not going to they're not going to allow themselves to get discovered. Right. So now what's going to happen? He's going to lie low, so it's going to be much harder to catch them. So I'll agree to that. They Baxter leaves, and then and then Haddock says, "Well, I'm going to take a seat." He's holding the chair in his hand, of course. He thinks he's holding his hand. He's just holding a broken part of the chair. He puts it down, sits down, and falls onto the floor. And that is the end of that page. And that is the end of the first part of Tintin. This was the 24 pages oh. that uh, Hergé drew. And now, two years later, wow, we start the next page. Okay. <laughs> Seems to be always hospital scenes where we take a long break. <laughs> By the way, this is another one of those Tintin head wound things. Uh, Tintin back in the old days, you know, would be like, Tintin, you've got a horrible uh, injury to your uh, spine. Uh, six bullets are in it. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll be getting up now, Doctor. No, no, Tintin, you've got to stay in rest. Nope, I'm done. I'm gone. And uh, later in the uh, thing, uh, your leg fell off, Tintin. You must stay. And uh, nope, uh, here I put my leg back on. And off he goes. Tintin will not stay in a hospital. No. So some weeks later, not, weeks later. He will not take money. Uh, stay in a hospital. The day for uh, the day for the launching of the trial rocket has arrived. He can't afford to stay in a hospital. <laughs> no, he can't. They offer him some money, but he says no. Yeah. 
Uh, if only he would endorse a breakfast cereal or, or some something. such. <laughs> yeah, some, some dog underwear. food for Snowy. Some underwear or something. That's right. So, uh, so tin, tin, tin of dog food. Baxter's asking the professor, you know, if everything's ready. Yes, indeed. Uh, last gu guide rails are in place. The gantries have been removed. The technicians are now completing the fueling up. And so, uh, you know, uh, Haddock's there talking to him a little bit. Tintin has, uh, Tintin was still injured weeks later? Wow. That is weird for Tintin. He does not normally take that long to mend. He's yeah. normally Wolverine. That guy heals fast. Anyway, uh, so the fueling is, uh, is, is full up. Uh, we have a little shtick with, uh, with Snowy uh, walking into, is, is it Calculus? Uh, wolf. Wolf? Yeah. Uh, oh, well. Oof. And then Day walks into something else as well. Uh, goes up where he thinks he'll be safe. Unfortunately, it's right in front of a speaker. He falls down again. Just, just a whole bunch of bad times for Snowy. Yeah. Now it's time to clear the launching bay. So here we see, I just want to say something about this page, is that we're, we're starting to see the... the uh, we're starting to see Bobby Demore's hand here, so we, you know, we get some interesting angles, some interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. The top middle panel, for instance, and the bottom final panel are both drawn in a very interesting, uh, you know, from a very interesting perspective. So, you know, Hergé didn't have to. I mean, he could have done that too, but it just took so much time to do it that it wasn't worth it for him. It was easier for him to do it in a different way. Yeah. You know, he didn't mind drawing stuff, but if it was so much work to do one, you know, a, a panel that someone's going to look at for one second, it's just not worth it. So, yeah. So everything's being set up uh, for the for the launch to to occur. Uh, Thompson, I, Thompson. Oh, just go one ahead, more time. Please. I think I said the very first the very first return of of Tintin to the to the magazine wasn't that page. It was a uh, a kind of a a page that had, had lots of text on it and kind of gave you like an outline of what happened in the first twenty four pages. Oh, okay. And then the next week, the story proper started. Gotcha. So uh, Thompson and Thompson uh, go into a room with a skull and crossbones and a uh, lightning bolt on it. Uh, yeah. Basically saying... That's uh, what you do. Yeah. He's, oh, look, a power switch room. Well, let's go inside. So they go in and they get blasted out with their clothes uh, being shredded, as they do. Uh, then uh, uh, Wolf is showing uh, Haddock uh, control panel for guiding the rocket. And he's, oh, looks a bit like a piano to me. And there's a little joke about uh, pretending to be uh, Bianca Castafiore. Yeah. Uh, well, that's good stuff. Uh, so uh, the... <laughs> it's fun. It is fun. It's good fun. And we're... Uh, we're, we're remembering the world that we're in. The world that we're in has her singing a lot. So that's good. Yeah. Uh, so he's just having a big goof around. Uh, and uh, then uh, the uh, Baxter has had enough of this nonsense. Like, yeah, that's great. That's good stuff. Okay, anyway. we got other things to think about besides chamber music. All right. In a few minutes, gentlemen, XFLR6 will begin its flight. I propose that in honor of launching the rocket, uh, should fall to our youngest colleague, Tintin. You agree? Yeah, sure. The guy with the head wound. Why don't you let him do it? Makes sense. Uh, tells him how to do it. The left-hand lever controls the auxiliary engine, used only at the outset. The other controls the nuclear motor, which takes over later. Even a dummy could do it. Do it! Doesn't say that. Uh, and then we, <laughs> have, rude? we have the launch. And off the, uh, the test rocket launches. Yes. Up it goes. Up it goes. Uh, for the first time in history, man is sending a rocket to the moon and back, says uh, Calculus. Very happy. So happy he accidentally smacks Haddock in the face. Knocking his pipe out. That's right. Oh, no. We're doing this again. He's looking for his pipe. Looking for his pipe as the rocket goes into the sky. Looking for his pipe some more. More looking for his pipe. Rocket in the sky. Uh, looking underneath the, uh, the the desk. that well, Not desk, but console that uh, Calculus is there. Bumps his head on the console, even though uh, he's uh, he's being told, don't bump your head. 
uh, and uh, still looking for his pipe. Snowy tries to tell him where his pipe is, but he shoes him away. We see that his pipe is actually uh, on his belt buckle behind him. Burns his butt uh, with his not pipe. His, not his belt buckle, but yes, on his belt. On his belt. It's Yeah, that's right through, you know, what do you call that? Uh, the loop. That belt it, loop, yeah. Belt loop. Yeah. And uh, so we go. Uh, nope, it's it's funny. Then you have a thing for the intercom. Extension, please. Observatory calling. What was that shout we just heard? Uh, don't worry, Captain Haddock just found his pipe. Baxter's <laughs> had enough of this. <laughs> enough shenanigans. Enough of the hullabaloo. Okay. Uh, now it's the next phase of the operation. The motor is stopped. Its own speed, combined with the force of lunar attraction, should cause the rocket to go around the moon. We can uh, we can only resume radio control when XFLR6 reappears. So now we're ready for Tintin to throw the switch. All this is going on. Meanwhile, the bad guys, now their rocket is masked by the moon. We go into action in a few minutes. Excited calculus. Ah, imagine for the first time in history, cameras are now photographing the side of the moon no one's ever seen. Thanks to us, my dear wolf. Thanks to us. And uh, there she is. Here we go. Observatory to control room. Stand by. Restart the nuclear motor in 30 seconds. Uh, Haddock acts if he could do it. Of course, says Tintin. Bad move. Uh, and uh, Haddock slams it. It's like, no, don't, uh, not so hard, says uh, says uh, Tintin. Here comes the rocket. Uh, exciting. Uh, coming down. Observatory to control room. 0098. Repeat. All right. Correction made. Uh, all right. Correction. 3276. Repeat. All right. Correction made. Uh, corrections are not being made. Something's gone wrong. The rocket is not going where it should be. Uh, professor gets up, forgets to take his headphones off. Neck snaps back. Oh, so much trouble. All leading to the rocket exploding. Test rocket exploding. Yes. Sadness all the way around. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing more to see. The rocket's exploded. Sad. It's very sad. And then we cut to the villains saying, Accursed luck. They've foreseen everything. And they blew up the rocket themselves, which they did, instead of letting it fall into uh, our hands. Didn't want the bad guys to have the rocket. No, they did not. And, of course, it's all, all Tintin as usual. So, uh... What's interesting on this page is that, once again, a little bit of stretching out. So the first two panels are in the uh, magazine version. The bottom two tiers, sorry, the first two tiers are in the magazine version, but the bottom two tiers aren't. And nor is the nor is the blueprint in the magazine version, which is understandable. To get, for one week of Tintin, you get one page of a blueprint of a, of a spaceship. Yeah. A bit of a ripoff. So, well, though, if you're a kind of kid who likes this kind of thing, a blue a blueprint yeah. of a spaceship is the kind of thing you might cut out, put on your wall. Yeah. By the way, something yeah. I didn't mention was a nice bit of business. When the frustrated uh, calculus was was tearing his hair out, he was also grabbing uh, Haddock's beard and trying yeah. to tear that out as yeah. well. So uh, Haddock is like very careful around his friend right now, so as not to get his beard torn out. Yeah, and so, so yeah, that so yeah, we end with we end with uh, calculus smashing his horn into Haddock's face. And so after Tintin suggests, uh, you know, uh, this is all is not lost. This is a triumph for you. Your nuclear motor worked perfectly. Uh, didn't the rocket go to the moon and circle it? Uh, to which Baxter goes, you're right. The trial was conclusive. Don't be downhearted. We're going to start working on another rocket. But this one will be the real one to carry you to the moon. Yeah. So hooray! Smack uh, Haddock in the face. And then a fortnight later. How long is a fortnight? Two weeks. Very good. Uh Haddock is walking. By the way, the as a comic writer, that is one of the biggest drags for me. Is trying to come up with different ways of saying later, a bit later. Yeah, but much later. You know, so I can see why you pull out Fortnite. Fortnite later. Yeah. Fortnite is a fairly common expression in England. We don't really say it here. Yep. Uh, so we have, as I said, this was not in the original version because there was no blueprint, so there was no need to have a scene of of uh, calculus carrying around the blueprints or Haddock meeting him or. Haddock uh, having a one-sided conversation with Calculus as usual, because Calculus has not got his horn with him. 
So he brings the uh, plans into Baxter's room. Miss here is Baxter, of course, as usual. And then on the next page, it's interesting how they do this, but yeah, he uh, the first top two tiers, once again, not in the magazine version. So basically what you're doing is you, if you take out the top tiers, two tiers on this page and the bottom two tiers on the other page, you just make one page okay. out of the two halves that are left. And that's basically what happened in the original version since there was no blueprints. Okay. Uh, so I do like the blueprint a lot. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. All right. So what page are we on now? We're on page 36. Sounds good. So after the blueprint. Unless you want to talk about the blueprint. I don't know. It's not. No, that's yeah, fine. That's fine. It's a rocket. And it, yeah. they break it all down. It's the kind of thing that I used to like as a kid when I'd uh, look into a comic and they would either show you a side view of the Fantastic Four's Baxter building or the Batcave or how uh, the Batmobile worked or Spider-Man's webbing. You know, and they'd yeah. break it all down and show you all the details. I would love that stuff and I would draw it myself just to death. So uh, so yeah, we're we're going along with planning for the uh, for the rocket. Now we're test we're putting a suit on Haddock. Uh, that we're test testing yeah. it out, yeah. and that's kind of a funny shtick. You know, put you put Haddock in an outfit. That's good stuff. Yes, that's fun. They did miss the chance of pinching his beard in the uh, as they put the helmet on. I know it happens in uh, yeah. Red Rackham's Treasure, but. Maybe enough of the beard has been pulled out by, uh, <laughs> by this calculus. So they're testing for pressure, and they're going to be ch- testing for temperature. Uh, so they put the helmet on and uh, test the radio. Yep, all seems to work. And take them into a room and lower things to uh, to a vacuum. Things seem to be all right. And, and uh, also lower the temperature. Lowering the temperature. And then all of a sudden, he's uh, he's, 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 he's twitching. He's shaking his leg. He's... He's, he's almost doing cartwheels. What's going on? Something's gone horribly wrong. This is very scary. And listen, Sinson says, for heaven's sake, bring the pressure and temperature back to normal. Something has gone wrong. Uh, they do that. Finally, Tinkin can open the door, goes inside. Great snakes. What's wrong? Uh, takes his helmet off, and it is full of white mice. Yeah. Because, Apparently, uh, the, white, the mice were left in the suit. From the first make, series of the tests. From the first series of It doesn't make a lot of sense. No, because you didn't then test the mice afterwards to see how they reacted. Not only that, the suit is now full of poo. How long have the mice been in there? I want to know. Yes, there's... It's full of mouse poo. They cannot walk an inch without pooing. Literally cannot walk an inch without going to the bathroom. Though, to be fair, it would just be in 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 the boots... Yeah. Because the mice don't fly. No. So the mice would all be in the shoe. No, here's the other problem. If, if Yeah, this... so he's just standing in mouse poop. No, he's not standing in it's mouse poop. No, he's worse than the pipe in the he air. He's not standing in mouse poop. If you got into a suit that was full of mice, yeah. uh, you would feel them on your hands yeah. if they were in the arms. And yeah. if they're not, you're just crushing them with your feet because you're stepping on them. Because that's where the mice are is, is down below. Yeah. So does this joke work? I say no. It works. It doesn't. No. It doesn't. How do you mean it doesn't work? It's not funny. It's not. It doesn't. It, the logic of it. Oh well. You, who cares? It, it, no. You got. It, it's too that? big a stretch. Who cares about too that? Too big a stretch. Who cares? You know what? It would work if there was one mouse. One mouse in there works. Yeah. Uh, but like, you know, how many mice are here? Like a half dozen. Why? Yeah. Why is half dozen mice funnier than there's one mouse that's in that's running around that I could see. Yeah. You know, uh, gag still works. Anyway, Snowy tries chasing him, and and Snowy, being the terrible hunter, uh, smacks his head. Yes, there's a good Buster Keaton fall. Yeah. All right. So now we're hearing help, help coming from outside the door. Uh, it's the Thompsons. Uh, they were scared of mice. Yeah. Like an old, uh, like a maid in a Tom and Jerry cartoon. They're standing up on, on the, the chair. Yeah. chair. If they had a little skirt, they'd be pulling it up, but they don't have it. And uh, I like that uh, that uh, Captain calls them uh, sea gherkins. <laughs> but as he's leaving, he smacks his head on the door. Of course. Yeah. Because he had to stand up to get to the door. And he's also wearing the suit that makes him a bit taller, so he's not used to that height. Now, here comes a big emotional beat in the story. 
where Calculus goes, oh, my poor friend, didn't you notice the door was rather low? Do you think I did it on purpose? Do you think I spend my uh, my favorite pastime is cracking my heads on doors? I like that it's a character who's like been doing all this shtick. Yeah. Like, do you think I like hitting my... I don't like it. It's, it's like one of the three stooges just going, this hurts. I don't like the life I lead. I leave a life of pain. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he says, uh, so the captain says, I've had enough of you. Do you understand? You want to go to the moon? Well, you go. But without me, I'm going home. And you can go on acting the goat here for as long as you like. Well, Apparently. well, Calculus has his horn in and hears yeah. every word of that. Yes. He and doesn't, He doesn't think he's talking about chamomile tea. No. And this was, this sets him off. He doesn't say, oh, you're going to go on a boat, Captain? That sounds great. Yeah. He's going to sow some wild oats, Captain? No. You're digging a moat, Captain? That's right. You're going to ride a go-kart, Captain? No. He, uh, he loses it. It's it's a man pushed too far. Pushed too far. Yes. Finally, he demands an apology. For the he first said, time in his life, he can hear what people are saying to him, and he's been pushed too far. Yeah, he should have uh, stayed deaf. He was furious, and uh, the captain realizes, oh, I've said too much, and he's following him. You know, so I act the goat, huh? You think I'm acting the goat? Oh, yeah. And uh, and and the uh, captain catches his antenna that's in the back of his suit on the door. Yeah. Uh, he's still a little bit of shtick. St- furious still following uh, Calculus, who, uh, you know, uh, t- t- pushing everyone out of the way. Shows shows everyone who's working on the um, on the project. You know, all these people here? All these people here? Are they acting the goat, too? Yeah. Uh, and then a, a person comes up and says, well, Professor, what's all this about? I hear someone's acting the goat. He's a big man. Uh, little tiny Calculus <laughs> hangs him from a hook. Had enough. Uh, before gets, you, before you move on, can please. I just point out in the second tier, in the middle, or the third tier, sorry, in the middle panel is a little E.P. Jacobs cameo. That seems like a good place for one. So you're saying yeah. that's not Hergé on the right of that panel? No, okay. he did not wear glasses or have hair like that. Very good then. Uh, so uh, or wear those kind of shoes. Sounds good. So they have, uh, and he never wore white socks. All right, we're moving on because uh, this is now half the podcast. Just. Things that Hershey never wore. Oh, yes, right. Uh, uh, calculus is getting into a Jeep, saying, just just sit down. Don't argue. We're leaving. But but it's basically you've made Dad angry. Yeah. Uh, out, out they go, uh, you know, uh, driving farther, farther. But this is a good sequence here, though. Very good sequence. I just like that he, after Calculus does some crazy maneuvers in the Jeep, he says, I often say to myself, one of these days I'll learn to drive. Nowadays, everyone should be able to drive a car. Yeah, and then radiant. Yep. Oh, stop it! I don't uh, drive yet. <laughs> my nephew just turned thirteen today. Yeah, and my deal with him is I've got to learn to drive before he does. Ooh. So I got three years. Yep. Uh, which you know should be that those three years should be about the time we end this story. Okay. Um, if we just keep going through things, Hergé doesn't wear. He never wore a dress. That's uh, true. He didn't. And then Calculus does a big gesture of like, "Stop! We're here." Uh, what do you think of that? Look at look at what the goat created. Turn the page, and bam! Yeah, it's a great uh, reveal. Beauty shot. It's a great reveal. Gorgeous. Now, when this was in the newspaper, yeah, how did was, they do this? This was a one-page pick. This is the one page you got that week. You opened the magazine, and that's all you saw. It's it's kind of a shame because, like, I think it really works with, like, the... The, the, the instantaneous right turn, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what you really want. But that's what Hergé was not thinking about it in the magazine as much as he was thinking about them as album, yeah. in the album, eventually. So he didn't plan them around the around the uh like he didn't plan his his reveals around it being in a magazine one 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 page a week that didn't matter to him so if he had a page that was kind of a, a holding pattern for one week just to kind of build a little bit of of suspense fair enough he didn't care so uh now uh calculus is there hey what do you think about that huh huh oh goat 
There we go. All right. Now, listen, uh, you know, uh, this crackpot uh, contraption, as you call it, is uh, taking you to the moon. Uh, understand? Meanwhile, uh, you're going to look uh, over it and put your aerial down. He's had enough. He knows all the stuff that, you know, no more comedy shtick. Put yeah. it down. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's get to the lift. And uh, Captain uh, leans backwards, falls down. Calculus has had enough of this. Stand up. You look like an idiot. Stop it. Knock it off. We're going. We're going on the lift. Come on. Uh, they go up the lift. They get in, inside the ship itself. Quick cut back to the villains. Uh, talking about uh, a message from the new agent. Uh, yeah, telling you about the launching. Okay, send me that more information. Inside the rocket itself. That, really pretty. That damn Baxter. Yeah. A uh, really pretty uh, shot of the inside of the uh, control cabin. Once again, all, all Bob Demore. Yeah. <clears throat> drawing the backgrounds and uh, Hergé drawing in the figures. And the... Now, yeah. something I love about this is this feels like... Uh, those later Warner Brothers cartoons where it's Daffy Duck uh, going up against Bugs Bunny and okay. there's Elmer Fudd. Okay. Because Daffy knows all of Bugs' tricks. Yeah. And is going, he's, he's in a dress. It's a guy in a dress. He knows it. And at this point, it feels like Calculus knows all the comedy shtick. And things are so serious yeah. that he's going, look, you're in front of a hole. Yeah. Don't fall down it. Okay, now we're going to go down another... Oh, I see what you're saying. There's a second hole here. And you're going to fall down that one. Just look at the holes. He's had enough. Yeah. He's had enough. Just trying to take him seriously through everything. Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't want to be... He doesn't need this comedy relief nonsense anymore. Which, of course, you know, uh, that kind of arrogance goeth before the fall. And then he falls through the hole himself. Which yes. Is nice. That's a good good thing. Anyway, so we get a good tour of the living quarters. We get a little tour of the rest of the ship. Uh, it's all very impressively drawn, very pretty. Yeah, we nice we stuff. learn about the fact that there are these hatches, so there's airlocks in the ship to control the uh, access in and out of areas yep. and how controlling the air. And then we also discover that Calculus is forgetful and he falls down a hole. And then... Speaking of being forgetful... Speaking of forgetful, he actually... Gets amnesia. Gets amnesia. Uh, a kind of amnesia that's been described by doctors as Calculus syndrome. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, it's actually a type of amnesia that's recognized from the story. Yeah. Well, uh, we take him to we take him to the hospital or the yeah. Medical. They realize that he has amnesia and that he doesn't remember anything. Uh, and then, uh, of course, the uh, one of the guards comes in to confront him after driving like a maniac, after causing all this mayhem and storming around, describing himself as a goat. This guard, the guard comes in and says, "What were you thinking of this? What what could possibly have possessed you to be the, do, doing these things, Professor?" And Professor goes, "I don't know who you are or what you. I don't even understand what you're talking about." Oh, he didn't say goat, though, does he? No. No. Yeah, no. right. Oh, good. Uh, so, uh, that would rather ruin the gag. It would. So uh, so they're talking to the doctors. This is one of those situations where, back in those days, yeah. much like in every cartoon, yes. when someone got amnesia, you could bring the memory back with another sharp blow on the head. Okay. That's a bad piece of advice for a doctor to give anybody. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't or say it could kill you. It doesn't say here to give them a... Yes, it does. Where? It's, uh, it says that on the top, uh, page 47, uh, first panel. Uh, uh, oh yes, we could. It is also possible that a violent shock might bring back his memory. Yeah, but he's not saying to hit him. He's saying a like a shock, not a not a blow. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. A violent shock. Yes. All right. A violent shock, like like uh, being called a goat. So, <laughs> spoilers. So uh, the captain dresses up uh, as he did for a fancy dress party they had at the center. Uh, That's but... inexplicable, by the way. How so? That there's a fancy dress party. Look, here's here's something that you don't know the social life that that the captain and calculus have. You're right. They they go to fancy dress parties together. You're right. And that's that's what he's trying to remind him of now. So anyway, uh, he's dressed as a British soldier on a horse. 
uh, no dice. A hobby uh, horse, yeah. Yeah, hobby horse. Tries uh, doing a uh, jack-in-the-box with a, a snake scaring him. Yeah, that's the violent shock. Yeah, no dice. Uh, falls backwards on a chair. No dice. <laughs> well, I think that's nothing to do with calculus. That's just because he accidentally opens the box and scares himself. Sure. After saying that... that uh, it's you know that there's no way that a little snake is going to scare anyone. Then he opens it up and scares himself. Shoots him in the face with a water pistol after saying "Prepare to die." Yes, pretty harsh. Uh, uh, this page wasn't in the magazine again. This is another addition to stretch it out to get it to yeah. 62 pages. Uh, calculus spits in his face with uh, water, much like he was a, uh, a llama. Yes. Uh, well, that's enough of that. Uh, phone rings. Yes, we get to a point now where Bob Demore has to draw the telephones. Erge does not have to worry about drawing these stupid phones. Nice. A phone, uh, Tintin answers, uh, hello? No, this is Tintin. No, I haven't had a lot of lines in the last couple of pages. Anyway, no, I'm glad to talk. Uh, hello, Mr. Baxter. I'm afraid not. It's just the same. The captain is still trying. Uh, blistering barnacles. I'll, uh, he's going to set off like an explosive now. It calls a banger uh, underneath his chair. Yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to go off. Uh, it, we're now into full-on Warner Brothers uh, territory now. A captain goes in to check on the That's banger. Great. It's so great. And uh, it explodes on the captain, covering him in soot. Yeah. Now we're really... Look, if you thought that was too far, wait to the next page, folks. Why is it too far? It's so great. It's, yeah. Okay, so... Um, so now we're... The captain's going to scare him, dressed <laughs> as a ghost. Sure. So he comes in with chains, wearing a sheet that he's yeah. cut the holes out of. Sure. Uh, starts to... Go, beware, Cuthbert. I am a ghost. And then he shakes, shaking your shoes. I have come for your soul. Then he steps on the sheet, falls to the ground, dropping the chains. And so mad, he says, 10,000 thundering typhoons. Now, before we get to the big ender here, here's where I got to go. Well, come on now, Tintin. You know better than this. We've established that he's deaf. So you're doing all these verbal things. He can't hear you. You know how he can hear is through a little uh, uh, pipe. Get his pipe and put it in his in his ear so he can hear. Even if he's got amnesia, he's, he still can't hear. He's still deaf. Yeah. So all this, like, I've come for your soul business, it's nothing. It means nothing because he can't hear what you're saying. So why are you doing it? That uh, makes no sense to me. Anyway, uh, finally, uh, finally, he, uh, you're right. The captain does call him a goat, even though he can't hear him. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's, that's when we bring calculus back. Wait, he can hear him, though. Yeah. I'll call you. Dare call me a goat? This is too much. You're not getting away from this. And chases the captain around the table. Help! Help! He's uh, help! I'm help! Cured. He's cured. Yeah, that's a great line. And uh, I'm sorry you don't enjoy that sequence as much as I did because I was I was laughing quite a bit at it. Very good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. So oh, I did. Very good. And if you enjoyed it out there too, that's great. <laughs> so it's like everything but him coming in in a clown outfit on a unicycle juggling chainsaws to me. But that's again just me. So uh, so now uh, reunited with the memory uh, and everything, uh, Calculus jumps up to hug the captain, smacking him. Uh, doesn't have anything on his head, but still just smacks him hard in the face. That's what I like so much about Erge, though, is that he he loves slapstick. He has no problem yeah. putting I, in that kind of sequence in the middle of the story. I just well, love that he... What I like is is that these two are really good friends. Yeah. I like the friendship between these two. Yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. That the captain will go to those, those extremes to try to get Calculus to snap out of his amnesia you know like he's willing to put a sheet over his head and walk, walk around carrying chains none of them are good ideas by the way yeah none of them are good ideas right but that's the captain 
You know, he's not a brilliant guy. He's just, you know, he's just a sailor. He's not a not a genius. So it's okay. Here's the fine know, line for me. It's, it's like his affection. I got you. But here's the fine line for me. It's like it's when it's like if you incorporate the shtick into the storyline, and that pretty pretty much does. Yeah. But it's when you just feel like you're doing the shtick for the shtick, like it's hitting the head for for no because huh. it's time now to hit the head. It doesn't bother me. I know it doesn't, but I, it bothers me. I think as a Buster Keaton fan, I'm I'm perfectly fine with that because you know that was slapstick and that was something that they but did Buster, a lot. And you yeah, know, but um, but Buster Keaton is comedy first, right? Like Buster a Buster Keaton film is you're watching a Buster. So Keaton. so is Hergé though. To Hergé, comedy is trumps everything in his stories. Okay, it's then, more important to him than the adventure or the action or anything else. Then that's not how they're presented. Then if they're supposed Who, to be, who's if, presenting them though? That's not how they're presented in your mind, or no, how no, he this, presented that's them? not how I would say subjectively they're they're presented. It's like this is if you look at the cover of this, yeah. Destination Moon. Yeah, is there anything funny on the cover? Is this presented as you're going to be seeing yeah. a comedy a character story. with sweat things coming out? There's a dog sitting in the. No, the dog looks scared. Uh, a car- uh, uh, Tintin looks worried. Uh, the one yeah. guy looks angry. There's nothing on the cover that says funny. Yeah. If you look at like any of these covers, uh, with the exception of maybe the Castafiori Emerald. Try and find me any one of these covers where it's comedy. Yeah. It's not. It's not presented as comedy. It's an adventure that's got comedy in it. Uh, you then go like the first page of this story. Is there comedy? Nope. Uh, second, second page, page? there's a yes. dog chasing a cat. Yeah, there's immediately comedy. It's fine. Almost yeah, right away. Some co- there's some comedy. Almost right away in the story. But it feels like, you know, it, there's comedy in Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's a lot of really great jokes in Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, in fact, there's probably about as many jokes in Raiders of the Lost Ark as there is in this in this story. Yeah. And yet you would not go Raiders of the Lost Ark. That is my favorite comedy film. You don't think that. It's an yeah. adventure film. But you know that that's why that's what helps sell the, the adventure though, is the fact that it's also right. it entertaining. Helped, no, you're right. Comedy. It's in service to the adventure. Yeah. And for the adventure to work, yeah. you need to have an, enough grounding and basis uh, that you've got something firm to bounce off of. You've mm-hmm. got to believe that a character But char- I would say that about you've got to believe a character's in danger. Yeah. For you to care. If every, you know, when you look at the Thompsons, you're never scared the Thompsons are going to die because the Thompsons are pure clowns and yeah. you would never kill a clown. Yeah. They're going to walk into a room, they're going to get blown out of it, their clothes yeah. are going to be shredded, but they could walk into a nuclear reactor, kaboom, they're fine. Tintin, yeah. Yeah. on the other hand, he, could, gets, he gets yeah. a shot to the head yeah. two weeks later. He's still wearing a bandage because yeah. he's on a different level than the captain who just smacked his head 16 times and fell down a thing because he's a comedy relief character. It's, 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 it's different. So it feels like you've, you've got certain rules for this kind of story to me. And, uh, and when it becomes too much of, of one thing where it's just like, and now it's time for some comedy, <clears throat> uh, and it's, it, it's not grounded enough, then to me that doesn't work. Huh. That's my opinion, and that's why we've got two people doing this I, podcast. I'm sorry the person who invented the rules is, is breaking them. Uh huh. So <laughs> then, uh, days are going by, mm-hmm. and now in one week's time, gentlemen, on the night of the second and third at one thirty-four a.m., the launching will take place. Is everything up to schedule? Yeah, everything seems to be going along fine. Good, good. Uh, phone call comes. Baxter's on the phone. Yeah, what? Inside the security area. Three. You're questioning them. All right. I'm still doing this bit. <laughs> All right. Keep me informed. Still, still, yeah. I just want to say. I just. I also want to point out. The movie elements on this page is just having the calendar dropping, so you see the pages yes. falling. There's nice passages of time. Nice passage of time, and, and very influenced by the movies. So you, because uh, Hergé always regarded himself as a director, not as a cartoonist. He always thought of himself as drawing a movie, mm-hmm. and he thought of it cinem- as a in cinematograph cine- cinematographer in cinematographic terms. Okay, yeah, if that makes sense. I don't know. That was quite a quite a word. <laughs> 
<laughs> if that's a word. But you know what I mean? He thought of it as as sure. he was it was the camera. We're looking through the camera at the at the scenes. So uh, the the Zeppo have uh, arrested three people wandering inside the security area. Uh, of course, they said they wanted uh, to climb Mount uh, Zist. Oh, really? We gotta have a name like that, Zistophanol, uh, and lost their way. Uh, whenever they arrest anyone, it's the same story. You see, despite all the precautions we take, a determined man can almost find a way through the defenses. Yeah, well, and he's right. I mean, we said that about the airplanes that because. You are human. You're humane. You're the good guys. You can't just blast it out of the sky yeah. without warning, without checking to make sure that this isn't a person who is really lost. So by that time, these bad guys have already enacted their plan and have made good their you know evil plot. Agreed. And there's nothing they can do about it because they're the good guys. They just can't shoot them out of the sky willy-nilly or set up a big giant laser net around <laughs> the right. facility that planes flying through disappear. Or just a crazy dog. You know what? It's, it's a very barren in covered area people are going to get killed by those bears anyway because those bears do not fear man yeah uh but so no on the next page we discover one of the most important parts of the story okay but let's just wait oh, because snowy's being sued uh, that's what it is yeah but, that but, is the but, most but, important part of the story that snowy gets to go on the rocket ship yeah you got a nice little outfit there and you're so happy yeah it's great yeah the, and also a, the radio works there's a bone uh he's being given but he can't eat it seems a bit of a mean thing well they have to test the uh Test the radio. Yeah, sure, sure. There's other ways to do that. How's that? How do you make a dog bark? How do you make a dog bark? Yeah. How you say, hey, Tintin, can you make Snowy bark? Hey, Snowy, speak. He can't hear him, though. He's inside the spacesuit. Oh, I guess the radio. But they can't tell. I guess that would one way to make it make it tested is if he can hear. Yeah, Snowy's a very smart dog. If, uh, yeah, I guess so. And then we get also great on this page is we start the fantastic door sequence, <laughs> which I love so much. Yes. Yeah, it's good. This is this is fine. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the captain walks into a door. He's had enough of this. Walks into it again. Uh, yeah, this is a. It's I, not just that he wants to do it. it. We it's can't a, describe it. It's really a. Well. It's a super carefully choreographed sequence. Yeah, it's a. It super is a planned, very yeah. Harold Lloyd Buster Keaton. Uh, I would. Uh, I'd say more Preston Sturges has a lot of that to it. Is what very is. good. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, if you would recommend a Preston Sturges movie for someone watching Preston Sturges for the very first time, it would be Sullivan's Travels. Very good. So there we are. We get we get some good door stick. That's all I'm saying. Page fifty two. Check it out. Meanwhile, back to the villains. Uh, your mind's made up, Colonel. Absolutely. Don't forget that I have an uh -huh. old score to settle with our young friend, Tintin. Yes, this is a return of an old villain. Right. Who is he? <laughs> he is uh, the aide-de-camp of King Ottokar, so who is working against King Ottokar to bring about the uh, the coup. It seems a little strange here that we don't have the asterisks and the C. Yeah, yeah. it is kind of strange, isn't it? But it is him. Uh, maybe he just thought you'd recognize him. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of weird. Well, how about I mean, the other problem, too? It's like yeah. people go away, they come back, yeah. they go away fat, they well, come back skinny. This is King Otacar. They come, go away yeah. bald, they come back. Uh, this is King Otacar's scepter. So, but I think, uh, I, you know, maybe I shouldn't say this because I think the reveal is meant to come later when, you know, so in the story. So, but if he's yeah. setting himself up as, remember, I've got yeah. an old score to settle. Yeah, so we know that. So either we know who he is or we're thinking, who is this guy? Why does he have a score to settle? Right. I just wrecked that. I wrecked that. I spoiled it, guys. I spoiled it for you. I'm sorry. That's fine. It were a spoiler podcast. All right. So Baxter says, uh, now that Wolf, uh, what's your news? Why, well, I'd forgotten all about it, Mr. Baxter. Uh, telegram uh, from the uh, works at uh, Oberkotchen. Uh, the optical instruments will arrive on Monday. Splendid. It's very good news. All right. Then we're uh, the captain saying, you're going back to the site? Yeah, I'm going to go supervise the loading of the equipment. A few moments later, uh, the captain's there saying, oh, I uh, hope I haven't kept you waiting. He's got a big... Uh, Bought a crate there. Well, what's in it? Just two or three bottles of whiskey. 
Mm-hmm. It's a giant yeah. crate. You know, it's freezing cold up there, so I'm taking precautions. Oh, I'm awfully sorry, Captain, but no alcoholic liquor is allowed on board. We've a little rum for emergencies, but that's all. Why that? Why would you have rum for emergencies? I'm supposed to warm you up. Okay. Because it's like a ship. It's a spaceship. Yeah. And ships had rum on them. Okay. It was a terrible tradition, but no one could get rid of it. Also, no smoking on board? You There's know? probably more accidents occurred on, on ships in, in the time of the Napoleon, Napoleonic Wars and stuff like that. Probably more people were injured because they were drunk than for any other reason, any other kind of accident on ships. Yeah. It's from the grog rations. So no smoking, no alcohol, Captain's not going. Not going on the <laughs> but trip. But look at the size of his package of tobacco. This is a little tobacco. It's the size of, of a, yeah, two I know. shoe boxes. On well, yeah, it's other. like this one or two bottles of, no. He's, yeah, he's, no. A, he's got a problem. This guy's opening a speakeasy on the rocket Thompson ship. Passes by Thompson & Thompson telling him he's not going. They go, you know what, that's probably for the best. It's uh, madness. Yeah, sheer madness at your age. Mm. Oh, there we go. There's yeah. his goat. They know. Everyone's got a goat, and they just got his goat. It's like they know how to how to get him. Yeah, it's like they're actually smart. <laughs> they're zen-like is what these guys are. They get the job done, you know, uh, go away the wrong way. Anyway, so the captain flips out, and like, oh, I'll show you. I'm going. Yeah. So now we're on the following Monday. Everything's yes. arrived. It's time to go. And... Uh, you get a little shot of an actual computer of that time period. The, yes. The IBM 604. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a interesting uh it's actually kind of an interesting because it was uh, made in it was made in like the like the what was it called the univac yeah it was like one giant component but this was like was made in bits so you could like add or subtract oh is that right from it. Oh, yeah okay yeah and so it was uh this calculation the um for the calculation tube contained 1250 vacuum tubes inside it so just uh, pretty amazing and just remember whatever you're listening to this podcast on is more powerful than that computer we're talking about. oh my gosh oh yes it was like 50 hertz yep in terms of its uh, power yeah the first Uh, solid state computer was in 1957 everybody just in case anyone asks you that one day this was a case you go on jeopardy this was a tube this was vacuum tube wow not solid state so uh, the captain is no circuit uh, is writing a letter, uh, and Tintin goes, "Wow, it's an enormous letter. It's no letter, young man. It's my will, which you would do if you're going into yeah. space. You write your will, of course I guess. you do. It's just kind of it's just kind of funny. It does kind of lead to this the sense of because it's you dangerous. Know, yeah, and they kind of start to they kind of start to make that clear as we as we as we mount to the right, end, which to the end is of the why book. you can't put the Thompsons up there with I don't know maybe the Thompsons sneak on board. But as far as I know right now. It's all characters that yeah. make sense to go up yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. We, except maybe the dog. I don't know if the dog makes a lot of sense to bring into space, but... It's snowy. I understand it's snowy. I understand it's snowy, but it's normally snow- you would not build a suit for a dog. And, but but it's snowy. <laughs> so they uh, they have some champagne, uh, pop the cork, goes into the captain's throat. <laughs> yes. uh, we starts, see Snowy enjoying... He starts, well, luckily he wrote his will. Because he really, he does almost die here. Right. Well, here's the thing, too. He's basically, he's choking to death. Yeah. And Snowy takes this opportunity to drink some of the champagne. But he does get punished for it. Bad dog. He does get punished because he gets the cork in the back of the head. Yeah. This is, was this before the Heimlich maneuver? Is, is this back in the old smack yeah, in the back Yeah, the old days? smack in the back days. Yeah. yeah so anyway, the cork flips, spews out of, uh, spews? Uh, goes pops. out of the captain's, Let's say pops, pops out of the captain's, out of the mouth. captain's mouth and into the back of Snowy's head. Gross. That's right. Uh, to which Snowy goes, that's got a kick in it. Champagne doesn't agree with me. It's making my head spin. <laughs> okay. Good stuff. Yeah. So uh, so they still pour the champagne. Yeah. Not like we're not going to. Yeah. That's what they can't uh, waste they, it. They raise a glass. 
to toast the Enterprise, and a few minutes later, you know, uh, Captain's going, Hail Caesar, those about to die salute thee. Uh, but uh, here they're saluting us. There's men around saluting, blistering yeah. barnacles. And who knows, by thunder, it may be for the last time. You got a real Bones McCoy uh, with the captain uh, there right now, just complaining, not wanting to go into space. So, so the next sequence, we turn the page into a, a wonderful drawing of the, yeah. the cars heading up into the mountains. Bob, Bob Demore in action is, again, it's beautiful. Right. Uh, the, how the lights pick out the rocks around it. And everything. This looks like, it looks like reality. It's just so perfect. But it's not reality. It's like Hergé reality. Yeah, it's and they're perfect. going to launch uh, uh, at night because mm-hmm. at night, that's when space is out. Otherwise, you yeah. wouldn't be able to go into space. The reason You would just go into the yeah. sky instead of space, but the, it's space. The reason they're launching at night, more dramatic. That's the only reason. Yeah. It just looks better, so that's why it was done. Uh, in this sequence, quite a, it was quite a bit changed from from the the magazine version uh, because once again it was stretched out a little bit, and also the the giant picture of the spaceship that takes up half the page on page fifty six was added. Okay. So in the original version, uh, the first the first picture is an, is expanded, so it was a, a narrower. The images two and three were where uh, Captain Haddock and Tintin are talking about going to the moon and, you know, what the, the danger, uh, those were added. And so then uh, then the fourth one was also added. And then this the, the center panel was expanded. Then we head down to the bottom. These were kind of what made up most of the page where... Uh, Whereas uh, Tintin talking to the captain, the showing the the, the aileron or the, the foot of the of I don't sure what those are called the the bottom part of the spaceship, and then um, uh, Captain holding his the books, and then they added the um, the guy talking into his uh, t- you know the villain talking, which is good because right. you need that to remind us the villains are also waiting for this takeoff because right. they're excited about it too Everything for reasons we don't know, but they're excited about it yep. as well. Yeah, we got a ticking clock, a ticking clock, a ticking yeah. clock, a ticking yeah. clock. Uh, we have Baxter saying to the captain, goodbye. I'm delighted that a sailor would be one of the first men to set foot on the moon. I responds, I would have been uh, all the same to me if a piccolo player had gone. <laughs> yes. So then it's goodbye. Uh, they're saying their goodbyes. Everyone's getting on the ship. Uh, the captain is just not happy with this whole situation at all. No. In fact, uh, he even offers to give up his place to, to Mr. Baxter. That's right. Who mag- mag- magnanimously says, oh, no, no. Yeah. I couldn't possibly take that space away from you. This honor is yours. And we get a tip of the hat from Calculus saying, farewell, Earth. Slam. And uh, Baxter, the die is cast. There they are, inside which what could well be their tomb. Yeah, so once again setting that sense of foreboding like now the danger is really coming in there's no comedy in this sequence it's all just well, mostly just them uh getting ready for the takeoff mm-hmm. uh so calculus explains what's going to happen that they should be uh the best position for them is to be laying forward right let me mention by the way i don't think we have that uh cots. that uh, uh calculus is wearing a hearing aid now Oh yeah, that's right. So that's right, we've yeah. eliminated that shtick. We eliminated it entirely. But yes, uh, they've got mattresses that are a little uh, bent for their knees. They can lie on. Uh, based on right, actual, <laughs> based on actual uh, the actual designs from uh, Aronoff's aeronautics book, he had these in there as being the best way for people to withstand the g forces of takeoff. And but in his, there are actual uh, wires and and a thing that held the head in place as well okay because in their version there's nowhere for the head to go but down being crushed down so it's not really very safe because where's the head going to go when it's being pressed down like their body supported but not their head which is yeah they do have heavier uh, than any they do have pillows there for their head but yes it's quite a bit lower though than the yes it's true 
So yeah, it's a very interesting design for uh, for a rocket. And yeah. then uh, yeah, we're we're launching. Oh, I see. Yeah, you get a better view of the pillow and on the yeah. There you go. That's true. It's yeah, a little but better. still, they also you know some of them have comedically large heads. So <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, so now the countdown begins, and we get calculus going. Wait, what if I made a mistake? Yeah. <laughs> Well, all of them say things that... Yeah, uh, the, everyone's... Uh, there's a lot of foreboding. Everyone has their second thoughts, yeah. And know. then it's weird that you've got Snowy, who's got nothing. He doesn't even yeah. have a dog bed. Yeah. It's just like him and the floor. Well, he's supposed to go up there with, with Tintin, but he, Tintin can't get him to come up. Okay. Um, and then uh, Tintin asks himself, he says, well, you've lived... Well, man, you've lived through many an adventure, but I wonder if this is going to be your last. Yeah. Uh, what's, that says, dull, what's that dull, steady thumping noise? Oh, it's just the sound of my heart. Yeah. Uh, Haddock asks, what am I doing in this outfit? And to think... I gave that sea gherkin calculus his memory back, so he's full of... And then Wolf is wondering what he's done. He doesn't understand how he got himself into this situation. And then it's one minute to go. So he doesn't know what that means. Why is it only one minute to go to what? What's happening? The countdown continues. 30 seconds left. And then you see Baxter watching through the... Uh, what do they call those things? The observation areas. Yeah. And then the rocket takes off. Wonderful drawings from Bob DeMoor, of course. And then... They everyone's crushed everyone's against crushed their matches. They all go unconscious from the, the G-forces. And then we get a wonderful expanded picture of the, once again, this was not in the magazine version, this this yeah, full three-quarter, or uh, yeah, almost three-quarter page uh, image of the, I guess it is three-quarter page, three-quarter page image of, of the rocket ship taking off from the Earth. Yeah, it's wonderful. And more Bob DeMore. He's such a wonderful artist. He probably did that in half an hour, the jerk. And then... Uh, and then the rocket isn't answering. The rocket is not answering. And even the villains are uh, a villain is upset by this. Like, what something's gone wrong? Moon rocket. No so this isn't even paw. the villain sabotage. Something has just gone yeah. wrong. Yeah. Uh, but still. But I, they kind of expected it. But yes, they're concerned because they cannot they cannot bring them up. And uh, the rocket is now two thousand miles from the launching point. Yeah. No one understands it. Earth calling moon rocket. Are you receiving me? Earth calling. Still no reply. Says Baxter. Let's hope. You know. Uh, Observatory to control room. The rocket is now uh, 2,000 miles from the launching point. Has attained escape velocity, 7 miles per second. Everything seems in order. Yes, it seems to be so, says uh, Baxter. But what's worrying me is their silence. Call them again, Water. Walter. Uh, Earth calling moon rocket. Are you receiving me? Earth calling moon rocket. And then we have, what dangers await Tintin and his friends on the moon? What will happen on this perilous journey into space? Will they ever return to Earth? You can join in the rest of their great adventures when you read Explorers on the Moon. Yeah. Cliffhanger. It is a cliffhanger. I don't quite, Big cliffhanger. I don't understand why someone would be disappointed knowing that there's a second book that they didn't reach the oh, moon in the first. Oh, I can see that. It's, it's, look, it's this a strange... One, uh, no, I don't know. This one, this one. When you look at the back cover, you go, oh, there it is. They're standing on the moon. That's right. But if you only have this book on you. <laughs> yeah, but it's still on the back Now you got to go to the bookstore oh, well. and get another book yeah. and then get it and bring it and bring it back. Just, I can see. Just as readers of the time had to wait a month before it continued in Tintin magazine. Yeah. You know, so they also had but to But that's wait. a bit of a different situation. You yeah. know, again, readers at the time were going through a different long wait thing. Mm -hmm. I can see if you didn't know, like, again, yes, you can look at the back. And you can see that, you know, other books are coming. But if you just pick this up and it said Destination Moon yeah. and your characters are going towards a rocket. Yeah. And then by the end of the story, no one's on the moon. Yeah. Yeah. That's a disappointment. It's not much happens in this story. Not much. It's this one. Yeah. This uh, this one is very pretty. But of these stories, I think this is this is not the most exciting one by far. Not much happens. Yeah. It's all like set up. It's just stuff's coming. Yeah. Tintin gets shot. He was uh, hurt. Not much. Yeah, there you go. Oh, he lost his memory. Oh, it's back. Yeah. Everything's fine. 
I don't know. I agree with you in a way. It's very pretty, though. It's I, a lot of yeah. setup and then really beautiful, yeah. glamorous shots. It almost feels like, and again, I'm one of those people that is not the biggest fan of 2001. Yeah. Though I admit, visually, it's gorgeous. Yeah. That's what it sort of feels like with this. Is like, oh, it's very, very, it's very pretty. Mm-hmm. But character wise, like the the comedy that comes out of it to yeah. me is just it's it's very slapsticky, but not that character based. Yeah. You know, uh, it is interesting. It's the first story where uh, characters seem to try to stop the slapstick from that they know is going to happen. You know, so it's like, I, I got an ear horn, so we're not doing that anymore. Hey, you're always falling into holes. Watch they, out they for They do the it holes. a little bit, but not, not over, not over yeah. the top. But uh, it's, it, it's a different, the first thing, it's a different genre than the other books. It's not an adventure story. Right. It's, it's a science fiction story. And it's set now. Yeah. Whereas the other ones are not, are, are as you say, they're looking back on the past. Yeah, or they're, they're dealing with a culture yeah. that's set in the past. And and Tintin is normally the most modern of the group. So so he'll be going into, you know, with the Incas. And he knows more. Uh, he is, you know, he is the, he's the, the Belgian reporter from yeah. the uh, modern day. Whereas here he's in over his head and doesn't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like he's not... He's not hip to everything that's going on. He's just being taken along for a ride. And he's not, aside from when he climbs the mountain and is looking at the bent and actually doing exploring, he's not, and maybe I'm forgetting stuff that happens in the story, it doesn't seem like he's pushing the story along. Yeah, yeah. No, it's Calculus who, who is the main, the main motivator in this, in this book. This is mm-hmm. Calculus' story. For sure, and but it makes sense that it's calculus story because he's a scientist, and this is a very scientific story. It is, but you know? calculus up until this point has been just pure comedy relief, really. No, he's been a scientist. I mean, he invented no, he a hasn't. submarine. No, he hasn't, because what he's what he what he's normally doing is he's walking with his uh, his pendulum, yeah, going. Oh, this is and it's basically magic. Like the pendulum doesn't make sense. There's yeah. nothing scientific about a pendulum, yeah. but he's just like following this pendulum, and it's leading him to silly places, and he's doing silly things, and that's what he is. Like his science science you know his the the problem is he was introduced in a story as a scientist yeah or like he's a focus of a story as a scientist and that story the big payoff at the end is oh it was magic oh well okay so as a scientist there was no science no, that's not the story that introduced him and he was introduced no. in red rackham's treasure that's true. and, that, and that's... that is he invented a uh, submarine in that that yes he's able to sell for a lot of money to I help them buy I, I find that the you know that all these stories lead into another, so that one into another. So they're all full. They're one full story, right? Yeah. yeah. So when you when you're the scientist, and and there's no scientific explanation at all possible yeah. for this because it's all magic. Well, it's not his fault. I know it's not he's just his a, fault. He's just a victim it, of this situation. No, but it neuters his character. Like if you live, if you're a scientist and you live, in, yes, no, it is because if you're a scientist and you live in a world where there's magic, yeah. then who cares that you're a scientist? Yeah. What's it matter? Because there's magic, so you know people. People can possess you and use voodoo dolls and they can cause you pain by throwing a needle in yeah. and do this stuff like from the other side of the world. So what can you do, brother? You know, I, I invented a submarine. Whoop-a-ding! You know, there's there's magic. So who cares? So so in this story, it feels like... Magic tr- didn't get to the moon. <laughs> Did it? But could they... Those, those could Incas run on the moon. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe there's an ancient Greek who's got a statue of Diana and she's up there. I don't know. But... That's that's the problem is like we've had a character who is like this impotent, uh, just comedy relief character with no power or gravitas or anything like that. And then, well, I just, and in this I just one, and you. this one, you well, where's his? You, I, the only thing is that that you learn that, that Haddock misses him, yeah. and so you're worried about him. I mean, in the last book, it's tangential, but he invents a an antidote for the for the uh, exploding gas uh, for the N14 or the Formula 14. 
So that's something he does as a scientist mm-hmm. in the other book. He doesn't magically do that. He doesn't create a right. potion in a, in, a, in a cauldron right? and give it to a, in, a, in a flask to someone to drink. He, he invents, you know, by examination, yes, by rather yeah. comedic examination, yeah. then the fact that he just, you know, does a lot of damage to the place, trying to figure out exactly yeah. what's causing the problems. But he does, even, he but does even create... that, even that, the... the... Yeah, the science of the, the, the science of, of that is, you know, there are these pills that they find in an aspirin thing, mm-hmm. and what do, what do they do? Well, one, they make gas explode. Oh, that's interesting. That yeah. is a scientific thing. I'm with you. Yeah. Oh, but uh, these characters ate some. What yeah. happens? Uh, gives them green hair and makes them uh, belch bubbles. Yeah. And they turn then they yeah. and they it turns them into crazy uh, Hanna Barbera monsters. Oh, but don't worry. Calculus found a cure for Hanna Barbera monsterism. Yeah. Well, then you're still somewhat. in cartoon Apparently land, somewhat, right? It's fine. Still burping, you know. But that's that's the thing. It's like you've in this story. My 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 problem is they don't really go anywhere. It's it's a it's it's a pretty journey. Uh, the lead character Tintin mm-hmm. uh, doesn't do really much. Yeah. Uh, Haddock doesn't really do much besides getting hurt yeah. and be scared. Um, so yeah, that's yeah. that's where I think this is one of the weaker ones. Yeah. You had I've the read. same you had the same complaints about Seven Crystal Balls as well. And so the the answer is is that they're not. They're not two stories or one story that's been artificially divided into half. So right. it's hard to criticize a book that end like you you don't you're not reading a book and then you get halfway to the book and you close it and go, I can't believe the book ended that way. That mm-hmm. is ridiculous. What an ending. Could you, know? you judge Empire Strikes Back on its own? Well, I, yes you can because you know it's gonna continue. You know, you know it's part of a, a sequel. If Star Wars had ended that way, it would have been more disappointing. Mm-hmm. You know, but but Empire Strike Back could because you knew that it was part of a continuing story that had a third part that was coming as well. Mm-hmm. But if you're saying you can't judge it because it's got, it's part I'm not of saying a you can't. I'm not saying you can't judge story. it, but I think it's unfair to judge it as a standalone work because it's so not. You, so I'm going to say that to yeah. you then, because obviously Empire Strikes Back is not a standalone work. Yeah. You need the next film. Can you judge Empire Strikes Back knowing that there's another movie to follow? Can you just call it its own movie and and treat it as its own thing? Uh, do you have to? Let me ask you this then. Uh, I'll put it in this way: Do you have to judge the Tintin books as a, as a series? Can you take a book just out of? I don't think it, you should. No, actually, I don't think you should judge them as you, a series. I don't. But that's think what you're saying. Them, I have to. Ju- I, I no, can't no, be the fair Tintin, to this book unless I the Tintin can, ones. But I don't think that I don't connect uh, Red Rackham's treasure to Seven Crystal Balls. I don't connect. But those stories uh, do lead into each other. There's like direct. How things so? That like, are, oh, I don't have it in front of me, but like. Uh, definitely, unicorn leads into treasure, leads into oh, seven yeah. crystal those balls. Oh yeah, those are those two go together. But I don't think there's if there's a connection, we're just making it. I don't think that oh, they have oh. to be. Okay, I have to look at those books yeah. again. But I think look. there's a direct connection. I think there's something that happens yeah. at the end of because, treasure that goes into because crystal the thing balls. the thing to remember is that when they were translated, they weren't they didn't follow each other in the in the English translation. So mm-hmm. you are really you're really giving them a. a an, an, an assumed connection then a lot of them because they weren't connected oh i wish i had the book the right English. in front of me because i know it directly leads yeah from treasure to like the next book someone's going hey that just yeah. happened Th- those ones are possible because they were done very close together yeah. so unlike say uh land of black gold which came out after which came out well after the the moon ones right so you know it okay i'll take a look i'll take a look at the book again see see yeah. if i'm uh, misremembering that fine. or not it's fine. i am looking forward though very much to explorers on the moon because i like the idea of them actually being on the moon proper so i'm looking forward to next week reading that yeah and uh, seeing these uh, amazing moon rocks you've been you've been talking about oh well you can see it right on the cover there it's beautiful <laughs> I I, well it's so tiny though i can't see it on the cover because it's, it's so beautiful just a tiny uh, drawing on the back yeah, it's all shrunk down. It's cu- well, it's curious. Size I mean, my thumb. I would, you know, I would say, I would agree with you. I think that Empire Strikes Back is a better, is a better, um, like, film 
as a you know as a as a part of a story i think it works better than destination moon does i think destination moon does suffer from the fact that it's it's the it's you know uh broken off from the from the main story mm-hmm. that you know you do need them together to make it to make it work you know like to make the balance you know and i think that if you sat down and you read both stories mm-hmm. and got that all the way through story then you would it would connect more to what you what do you think the strength of this uh story is like what do you think the 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 high Okay. Here, my well, my thing okay. is, I don't believe it, I don't believe it's a good character story. The characters yeah. don't really evolve, with the exception of maybe the captain has to face his own fear. But even that, he's really he's really you know yeah. just turned by the Thompsons it's, calling him old. It's not at this point in the story. It's not about their personalities. It's, okay, so it's not a character based. It's not a character based story. So is it an is the is the action? Exciting? It's not the action. So what is, is the suspense? The no, thing? it's is not. It the the, thing. Is it just the drawings are pretty? No, it's what is it? It's well. I mean, we have to look at it. What did Hergé intend to do with his story? So let's talk about his intentions. His what intentions, you're assuming his intentions are. Well, no. What his intentions were was to create a book that was as realistic as possible in explaining uh, interplanetary travel. Okay. That's what he wanted to do when he started it. It's an educational it. book. So he wanted to be, yeah, have a sort of, a sort of educational element, mm-hmm. a, a speculative element, you know, to speculate on the possibility of space travel. Mm-hmm. At this time, space travel was not on anyone's radar. You know, he was well ahead of what... I mean, besides Destination Moon, you know, to do a serious uh, examination, to, to take the science of the time and to, uh, you know, to, to synthesize it, you know, into a, a, a possible, you know, scenario, a possible way to travel It's a realistic space. science fiction story. It's a realistic science fiction story, yeah. Okay. And that's what, he, that's what he set out to create. Yes, that can be boring. I'm not a huge fan of that style of, of science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, say, Robert Heinlein and his his some of his books have that element of hard science fiction where they're very focused on the science behind what's happening. To me, that's not that interesting. I am more interested in the right. characters. So to me, this book is the ap- the appetizer before we get to the main course of ap- Explorers in the Moon. And because I know that book's coming, I can enjoy this book a little more than right. maybe you can, where you're because you're stopping now. Yeah, you're not. Just I've just had on. the salad. and yeah. you're saying the entree is is coming. Exactly. But I got to review the salad. You right have to now. review the salad that right now. You're going to say not enough meat. You know, and so yeah, I'll agree with you. To me, I still think this book has has great humor in it. There's t- lots of times when I was reading it where I, I laughed out loud mm-hmm. and appreciated the 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 bang of the head. The I love the sequence of him trying to cure calculus's amnesia. I think that's a sure. masterfully done sequence. I love the door uh, sequence with Haddock, uh, you know, being hit by the door about seven different times from seven different causes. It's not just the same thing repeating. It's all kinds of different variations played on this. Yeah, and the I love that. scene is very, very strong. If yeah. you like, if you appreciate slapstick humor, then you appreciate the imagination that goes into creating that and laying out that sequence. You know, the same way that Charlie Chaplin or Harold Lloyd or Buster Keaton, you know, they had to carefully plan out their slapstick sequences. They weren't just done on the yep. spot. They were all carefully it mapped out. It does feel out. a little bit like, uh, like Buster Keaton on the set of 2001. Yeah. And like every so often you That's come right. to him and some shtick goes along and then we go back over to seeing how things are working. Yeah. And then we go back over to Buster Keaton who's having trouble with a pitcher of water. You're and right. And it's a, it's a hard line to walk. And, and maybe it's not totally successful because... You know, it's the same when Buster Keaton made a film. When he started making features, and let's think of this as a feature, when he started making features, he realized very early on that he couldn't have the cartoony slapstick elements anymore. It had to be grounded in reality in order to make the story believable. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you lost the audience. And he realized that very early on. And so his stories are always grounded in a reality, even though the character always happens to be standing on the rope that gets moved yeah. that causes him to fall and spin in, on his head. You know, that's going to happen every time because people laughed at it. 
and he was good at it and so he put that in his films you know and so you know that's going to happen and maybe if you watch a bunch in a row and this might be a problem that we're having now is that we're reading so many of these in a row mm -hmm. that you're going to start to to feel you're going to start to feel the the um, the, the author's quirks are going to start to, to irritate you the same way that when I was younger and I decided I was going to read all of Dick Francis's mystery novels in a row by the time I got to the 11th I was so sick of Dick Francis because all the quirks all his writing quirks and his little tricks were all so blatantly obvious to me by that point that it started to bother me you know and then you get tired of it and it's happened with other authors as well where you're just like I love the author so much I'm going to read all his books right now that is possible yeah. and then you get to a certain point and you're just like ugh this is not, you know. Well, here's the thing. Uh, let me ask uh, you, the uh, listener out there, uh, are you reading these books along with us at the same rate? And is that happening to you? Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've said a lot of stuff here, things we can never take back. Um, <laughs> so Dave and I are going to go out to dinner. We're going to silently stare at each other. Uh, I'm just going to have a salad. He's going to have the entree. I'm sorry you're mad. I'm sorry you're mad at me. I feel, oh, I'm so mad. I feel no anger. I couldn't be more angry at, at not at all. We've had bigger fights. Yeah, completely. Uh, <laughs> if you want to listen to those bigger fights, we do another podcast called Sneaky Dragon. <laughs> if you call this a fight, holy cow, this is a mild Canadian fight, huh? <laughs> wow. I disagree with you. I respect that. <laughs> Whoa, guys. Break it up. Break it, break it up. Come on. All right. There's no, stop before you <laughs> say something Somebody in better, both English and French you can't take back. Somebody better throw a bucket of water on these two. <laughs> okay, settle down. But we'd like to hear oh. your opinion on this. Uh, SneakyDragon.com is where we keep our message boards. So yes. uh, go on there. And, and our tempers. Uh, and our tempers. Uh, so uh, did this seem like we're angry? Anyway, uh, go underneath uh, our, the thing. You know how a message board works. Uh, also, if you know how Facebook works, we're on there as uh, Totally Tintin. And if you want to go on Twitter, Sneaky underscore Dragon. Though I doubt you'll do that because no one does. That's fair. Uh, though we do get some emails from you, and we appreciate those. That is sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. You can reach us that way. And we always appreciate when you uh, leave a review on the iTunes page. Here's the other thing you can do. If you're like, I don't want to write a review, fine. We're fine with that. But here's something you can do that really does help us. Uh, click subscribe. Uh, and that helps also to get people to know more about our podcast. Because uh, we don't have the budget to advertise. And I don't think we could. So there you go. Yeah, they wouldn't allow us. Now, uh, is there cool. anything more you want to say before we wrap up, Dave? No, that's I'm good. Okay, fair enough. I think we've mentioned that the next book is... The next book is going to be Explorers on the Moon. Yes. So you've got a week to uh, pick that up if you're doing this in real time. And if you're not doing it in real time, do whatever you want. Yep. That's fine. Are you going to sit and listen? Either way. However, yeah. there's no wrong way to uh, listen to this there are, show. There are wrong ways to listen to the show. Okay. Why don't you write us with some of the wrong ways to listen to this show? I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David Dedrick. Thank you for your kind attention. This has been Totally Tintin. Bye.